Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. So tonight is is nothing new. It's going to be a challenge, and I'm going to be teaching on the book of Revelation. So how many have ever sat in a Revelation class? Revelation. Years ago, I taught on the book of Revelation. We went through step by step. We discussed what we felt Revelation was about. How many were in that class? I'm just curious. Several of you. Did you get anything out of it? Well, I can tell you that here we are, another, I want to say we actually started uh, teaching in 2007, and 2007, 2008, I think it was seven, might have even been six, yes, but the first time we taught it, we had seen more people fill up the congregation. I had people coming from all different types of churches. People love the book of Revelation because they want to know what's going to happen. So we get into the book of Revelation. We taught it again on South Main a few years back. We saw good crowds there too. Uh, folks learn. I, I get it with Roger and Lori tonight. I said, you folks came in. In fact, that's why you came to SAR. You were invited by Mary Newman's husband to the Revelation teaching. And they never left. They came and they never left. So may Adonai bring even more like that. That's awesome. That was those six. So. We are in some serious times, what I would call the last days, the final days. Uh, we're in times that really the world has not seen before, if you're following the news. How many, are, how many of you ever watched the news? You watch the news and you're seeing things happening. It looks like um, if, we, if we were not believers, if we were not believers, we would have a right to be afraid. Because things are happening and they're happening at such a pace that the world has never seen before. Changes in weather, changes in politics, changes in people's thoughts, in the thinking, changes in culture. Whoever dreamed that years ago we would ever see, a, hear me when I say this, but we would ever see a man run for president who's actually married to another man. 20 years ago, you would have never dreamed to see that. Culture is changing. Politics are changing. The weather is changing. We're seeing volcanoes in various places. Uh, volcanic activity is at an all-time high especially in the ring of fire, and it's all around the world. Earthquakes in strange places all around the world. We're seeing peace plans come together with Israel and several nations. Who would have ever dreamed that Saudi Arabia would recognize Israel as a nation? Strange times we live in. In fact, Saudi Arabia sent Israel Hanukkah wishes this year. Never happened in history. These are strange times where the coronavirus, and no, that does not have to do with beer, but the coronavirus, people are getting sick, people are dying. Um, I believe that the numbers are being hidden on the news, and I think that there's a reason why they're hiding the numbers. And the, uh, you know, the seriousness of this, if, it, listen guys, we are in these times. China right now is being hit by this coronavirus. They're showing videos that are leaking out of the nation. They're actually, they're actually not just quarantining people in their homes. They're locking them in and putting bars and gates around houses so that people cannot get out. They're going into homes and dragging healthy people out, taking them who knows where. Strange times we live in. Not only now are we learning about these viruses that uh, seemingly are taking people out, and, and when people get reinfected with this, they're dropping dead of sudden heart attacks. It, it's, it's very strange. It will affect some people in one way, and it'll affect other people in another way. Um, right now we're seeing the plague of locusts. If you've ever watched that, how many are watching that on the news? This, this plague of locusts is as large as, as a nation. It's moving across. It went in through Africa. 
and it's devouring entire, listen, it devoured entire farmlands in 30 seconds. Two minutes, 30 seconds to two minutes, wipe out entire farms. We're talking, uh, well, was it three weeks ago? It was at 330 something billion locusts. How do they count all those little critters? I have no idea. But they're saying that they multiply every so often and, and in the multiplication, uh, two weeks ago it was at 660 billion. And they keep multiplying. And the, every time they multiply, they get bigger. Can't kill them. Well, they're, here's what they're doing. They're, they're making their rounds. They're actually traveling a path. They went through Africa. They came up uh, through Pakistan, through India. And now, guess where they are arriving? Into China. So now not only are they dealing with the coronavirus, now they're dealing with these massive locusts. And we say, well, that's over there. It's not going to affect us. But actually, this can affect the entire uh, not only the food chain, and it is affecting the food chain, by the way, but it's also affecting uh, the. If you're, if you know anything about the Baltic Dry Index and the world f- food supply, it is affecting things, guys. So when we look at this, I'm not sharing this to make you afraid. I want you to understand we are in these times where years ago, when somebody like David Wilkerson, anybody familiar with David Wilkerson? You may not have believed all his theology. Um, he taught some pretty powerful messages. And years ago, he had a vision in 73, and I believe he called it the vision. And he wrote a book on this. And some of the things that he saw are are coming to pass and have come to pass. We're going to talk about another book tonight, and that is the book of Revelation. Everyone say Revelation. Revelation. Let's look, if you would. You can go ahead and open your Bibles up to Revelation 1. And I just, I'm going to teach. If we have questions, you can feel free to ask questions. I'm going to come at this through several viewpoints. And some of you, when you, when you read Revelation, you're going to see Revelation as to how you've been taught. And that's good. If it's good theology that you've been taught. But we're going to talk about theology tonight. We're going to talk about a word called hermeneutics. Everybody say hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Uh, this has to do with the way that you and, or that we interpret scripture and the way that we look at scripture. See, we can read this, we can read this book. And by the way, Revelation is one book. It's the only book that it says, if, if you read it, you're blessed. You read it and you hear it, you're blessed. So how many are ready for a blessing tonight? Listen, just by being here and listening, you are receiving a blessing. How many would receive that? But there's also responsibility because what we hear, we have to take it in. Now we have to do. So, but there is a special blessing for the reader and the hearer of the word of Adonai. Revelation 1. Let's look at this. Revelation is actually a word from the Greek, apocalypsos. That's a big fancy word. It's where we get the word apocalypse. Everybody say apocalypse. If I were to ask you your thoughts on Revelation, what would you say? If I were to come to you and I'd say, hey, I'm not a, I'm a new believer. What's this book of Revelation all about? What would you say? Armageddon. What else? Prophecy. Okay. But the last days. Ah. Okay. Okay. All right answers. Yes. Changes. Anybody else? Yes. Okay. All, all good answers. The word apocalypse, what does that mean? Because revelation in the Greek means apocalypse. Apocalypsos. Do you know what that means? Anyone want to guess? No? See, we would think a battle or a calamity or something bad. It means uncovering. Thank you. The Literally, the picture is to take the lid off and show something. 
It's to remove the lid. So what is Revelation uncovering? What is it revealing? Go ahead, you can talk to me. What's it revealing? Prophecy. The whole thing is about Yeshua. This whole thing is the message of Yeshua. It's all about Yeshua. In the beginning was the Word, and this is about Yeshua, the Word of Adonai, the Word of God. But when we read this, understand, we're going to come back to this. When we read this, understand, when we talk about God, remember God is in Hebrew Elohim, but we talk about the Shema, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God. And we try to figure this out with our Greek minds, and we're going to read through Revelation. And I guarantee some of you are going to be compartmentalizing in your Greek mindset, but we want to think like Hebrews tonight. Everybody say Hebrews. So the Hebrew mindset is to think out of the box. The Western world says uh, 2 plus 2 is 4. The Middle Eastern mindset is let's look at the whole picture. And so we're going to look at this whole picture tonight. Now, we're not going to go through the whole book, of course, tonight. But we're going to look at this. We're going to take off little bites, and we're going to chew this. We're going to talk about it and, and dissect it and get it in us. Amen? So apocalypse means to uncover. It means to reveal. So I'm just going to put... Oh, I don't like this marker. Roger, can you help me find one that works good? To uncover, because I'm going to need that board tonight. Everyone say uncover. It's not a mystery to the believer. See, everyone looks at the book of Revelation, they say, well, that's the great mystery. Nobody can really understand Revelation because it's too mysterious. If you are the body of Messiah, the bride of Messiah, this is for you. How many know that? Wave at me. So, so we're going to take the lid off of this. I'm going to look at this, the message of Messiah in Revelation to see what's he telling the bride? What's the mystery of this? We're going to look at that. Let me ask you a question tonight. Was this book, known as the book of Revelation, always accepted in the church? I say the church, the kehilat, the, the call out ones. The, if I say church, you guys understand what I'm saying. It's the, it's the synagogue. Really, uh, church is more a medieval word than we would get. Synagogue means those who have been called out and gathered together. So when we talk about that, if I say church, you know who I'm talking about. But we are the bride of Messiah, the synagogue of Messiah. Okay, The called out ones, the ecclesia, ecclesia. Um, I found it interesting as I did my research that this book was not always accepted in the early church. There are, there are actually some believers today that do not... Thank you. That do not receive this. They say that this may be extra biblical and that they don't receive it. I found that to be interesting. I thought everybody believed in the in the Book of Revelation, but not everybody did, even in the early church. Now, if you study it back, um, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's it doesn't have credentials because it does. But let's look at this through scholarly eyes for a minute. This really is a real book. It really was written by John. Now, there are some that would argue that. They would say, there's another John. But no, I believe this was John, the disciple, the beloved, and that he had a revelation of Messiah. Um, this is a true book. If you'll read some of the early uh, church fathers, some of the early fathers of the faith uh, did believe that this was a real book. But over time, there are some denominations that did not. Why do you think that people don't talk more about Revelation today? Too, glo too gloomy? Or they don't understand it. Or they're fearful. I guarantee you that some of the larger churches do not talk about Revelation because, like you said, they're fearful, they don't understand. Maybe it's a gloomy thing. Should we read the book of Revelation, guys? What do you think? Sure. Why? What's the importance of it? It's prophetic, right? And you'll be blessed. 
Uh, is this book accepted today? I think for the most part, the church does say, well, yes, John wrote the book. Yochanan wrote the book of Revelation. But when I say, well, is it accepted today in the body? Are they teaching it? Mm, some are. Some are. But some are not. Some are not. Again, they're afraid. They don't understand. Uh, it doesn't make sense. They're not taught. The leadership is not taught even what it means. But I believe that there's a message in that for us today. Revelation, it is for us. Uh, John was the author. If we look at this historically, John uh, lived to be, actually John died of old age. He lived to be, what was it, in his late 90s to 100? Was it? 99. I knew it was close to 100. John, the history behind Yochanan, or John, was this. He's known as the Beloved. Uh, he was one who was not martyred. History tells us, and there are legends, that they tried to boil him with oil to shut him up. And when they tried to boil him, he wouldn't die. So that they took him out of the oil and they said, well, since we can't kill him, we're going to put him on an island, island of Patmos. And this was a place full of criminals. So criminals against the state of Rome. And uh, your job, you just didn't sit around and eat crackers and cheese. Your job on the island, you did have a job, and that was to mine rocks. You, ever, you remember the old movies where they would take these guys and they'd put them in jail, and they'd have the thing on their ankle, and they'd bust rocks? Well, that's pretty much what they did on the Isle of Patmos. They mined rocks, and they busted up rocks. And John was there. John did not die there, but John was actually released. Uh, Domitian, the emperor Domitian from Rome, put him on this island. Anybody familiar with Domitian? I'm just giving you some history here behind this. Domitian was one bad dude. He was an emperor. You know who his brother was? His brother was Titus. His brother was the one that destroyed the second temple. So, so Domitian was the, his brother was Titus. So that tells you how bad this family was. But Domitian hated believers. He persecuted believers with a vengeance. He was one of the most evil guys. He was a bad dude. This guy was bad. And, uh, so when we talk about Domitian, he was not a good guy. Uh, Christians and believers suffered quite a bit under him. He banishes John or Yochanan to the Isle of Patmos. John doesn't die there. Domitian dies. John comes out of that, and he actually lived um, and died. But he would travel the churches afterward. He would go to the different kehilah, the different congregations, and they called him, history says they call him camel knees, because he would go in and he would get on his knees and he would pray. He was known as camel knees because that's all he did. He just prayed a lot. And uh, when they would invite him in, they would ask him to speak. And they said his message was always the same in his latter years. He always said, little children love one another. Little children love one another. Can you imagine the message for years and years was, little children love one another. So that was John's message. So when we talk about the book of Revelation, this is written by John. It was revealed to John, and we're going to get into this. But um, there was a reason why it was given to John. He was known as the Beloved. Questions or comments? Yes. Well, that, it depends on what teachers you listen to. Hmm? Well, it could have very well been at a time when he wasn't crushing the rocks on Patmos. We do know this, that he did have the vision was given to him on the island. So whether he wrote it down then or took it with him and wrote it when he was released, depends on what teacher you follow. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. Yes, good, good point. Yes, yes, yep. There you go. <laughs> well, I wonder what kind of love offering he got. You know, <laughs> if that was the same message over and over, I think he wasn't concerned about a love offering. I think he was concerned about Messiah and the Kehilat. Amen.
So let me ask you another question. How many, how many books would you say? We talk about Revelation as one book. You know it's more than one book. Think about it. How many have ever heard of the Pauline letters, the epistles, the Pauline letters, or the letters from uh, Kepha, Peter, the letter from Jude, the, the, the letters, epistles to the congregations, to the different churches, Corinthians and all of that. Well, think about it. How, think about Revelation 1 through 3. And who does he write to? The seven, the seven communities, the seven messianic communities or the churches. And so those can be seen each within itself as a specific letter to that body. So when we talk about the book of Revelation, it consists really of many books. It has seven specific letters to the various churches or the messianic communities in the area. Everybody say seven. And by the way, uh, there, when we talk about seven, seven is seen throughout the book of Revelation. And we're going to talk about that. I'm going to give you examples of that as we go through this. You'll see seven, boom, 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 boom. Seven trumpets, seven bowls, uh, seven seals. You, you have seven. Uh, it's constant. It's a constant theme throughout the book of Revelation. Everybody say seven. So there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation. There's a lot of imagery. It's highly figurative. It uses symbols and similes and likes and as. You know, we're, we're seeing Yeshua whose eyes shine as fire. His voice sounds like the sound of many waters. It, it, these are descriptions of things. We see a woman who's riding a red beast. Now, is this literal? I mean, are we going to literally see in the skies a woman riding a red beast? The, this is figurative. It's telling you things. Questions or comments? Nope. Okay. Everybody say imagery. So, how, how, here's what's going to set you all apart. Like, you may see it a little differently than she does, and she may see it a little differently than you do, and so on, because of the, the way that you've been taught. The way that we've been taught in our past, the mindset that we have. Can I, show, can I prove it to you? How many of you believe in a pre, uh, uh, how many of you believe in a rapture? Let me see your hand. How many of you believe in a pre-trib that you're going to be out before the wrath of Adonai. Okay. Now hold your hands up. I'm not making, I'm just seeing. How many of you say it may happen mid-trib? How many say post-trib? So did you know, these people never raise their hands once. They're staying out of it. <laughs> they're all staying out of it over there. They're saying, they're like, we ain't raising our hands for nothing. Um, but, but here's my point is to, to have you do that to show you that we all see scripture and we interpret it as we've been taught. So my point is not to say, well, who's right and who's wrong, but to get you to think that maybe there's something else to that where we have thought, well, maybe we've seen it this way, but maybe we can begin to see it another way. Be very careful as to how you interpret allegory. I want to say that again. Here, let me see everybody's eyes. Be very careful as to how you interpret allegory, because when we look at allegory, the things that are images and we say, this is the way I am determined to see it, maybe you're cutting off something. You might miss something. See, if we get so much in a mindset that we say, we have to interpret it this way. Are you all with me on that? So so begin to see things. Now, there are some things that we can all agree on. Yeshua was born of a virgin. He is the word of, of God. He died for our sins. He rose again three days and three nights later. How many know that? We can be in agreement. How many believe he's coming back again? These are things, see, that's solid, that's solid biblical good stuff. If, if people vary on that and they say, well, maybe I believe Yeshua died for me, but I don't know that he's coming back again. 
Uh, you better watch that. Or if somebody says, well, I believe Yeshua died for me, but I don't believe he was born of a virgin. Better watch that. That's bad theology, guys. Okay? Questions? I saw some hands. Yes. Two hands. The allegory, you have symbols and images, and the allegory will tell you, it's like a little, it's, it's telling you of something. For example, Babylon. You know, Babylon is mentioned many times in the book of Revelation. Babylon is mentioned, um, really, if you read and study the book of Revelation, there's two cities. I always say it, it's like a tale of two cities. Anybody ever read that in A tale of two cities. You know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. We're talking about two cities in the end days. One is Jerusalem and one is Babylon. One is about the kingdom of Adonai, the kingdom of Messiah, the kingdom of the Most High. The other one is about the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist. Can I challenge you with this? How many of you would say that the word Antichrist is in the book of Revelation? Wave at me. Not once. No, it's okay. But that's what I'm saying. See, we're... <laughs> No, I didn't mean embarrassed. What I'm saying is we we have these thoughts and we go, well, of course the Antichrist is in the book of, of Revelation. It's never He's never mentioned as the Antichrist. He's mentioned in the Pauline letters and in the epistles, in other areas. But the word Antichrist itself, look at it. Very interesting. Is, is the concept of the Anti-Messiah seen in Revelation? Everybody say yes. Sure is. But But that word itself, we would think, well, isn't it in there? See, we're going to challenge. I'm going to challenge your thinking on some things. Blaze, you had your hand. Good point. Um, for example, back in World War II, in the days of World War II, everyone believed that Hitler was the anti-Messiah. And, and by the way, what did he put on the Jewish people's right hand? A tattoo, a mark. What was he doing? He was wiping out the people of Adonai. He was killing the Jews. By the way, those of you that are here tonight, you would have been in the camps as well. Some of you are not even Jewish, but just by being in this place, you would have been hauled off. So what did he do? They said that Hitler was the anti-Messiah, that Mussolini was the was the, the false prophet, that the Catholic Church was all a part of this, and because Hitler went into the churches and he uh, changed some things up, removed the crosses, uh, put pictures of Hitler, put the pictures of the swastika up, they truly believed that this was it. World War II, where all the, you know, everybody's looking for the Messiah. Well, that's a good point. Good point to say, were these false teachers? It was the way they saw it. In a sense, it played out in such a way to say, well, did that fulfill prophecy? It, it wasn't the book of Revelation, but can I tell you this? Hitler was an anti-Messiah. He was not the anti-Messiah, but it was the same spirit. Ah, you see what I'm saying? So you can have that same spirit running. In fact, Domitian, we talked about Nero and, and Domitian, the emperor out of Rome. He was an anti-Messiah. He wasn't the anti-Messiah, but he was an anti-Messiah. In fact, in Rome, in the days of Rome, people, the early church, the early believers, some of them thought, this is it. Messiah's coming back because you couldn't buy or sell anything. It, they had a gate. Um, there's a teacher that teaches this, and I saw the video. It's pretty interesting. And I see your hand. They had, they had the gates of Rome. If you wanted to buy or sell, to go through that gate, they had people stand there. To go through the gate, you had to, they had a little bowl here and they had a little fire pit there. You had to reach into the bowl and the bowl represented your, your worship to Caesar. So before you ever did any business in Rome, you had to take and reach into the bowl, take a pinch of the incense, throw it into the fire, 
That was your symbol that you were a part of Rome and that that was your just your little instance of Caesar worship. You didn't have to do anything else. And then they welcomed you through the gate. If you didn't take that pinch of incense, you didn't buy or sell in Rome, according to some teachers. Now, what's interesting is this. How many, how many people, even today, how many believers would say, well, what's a little pinch? Just a little tiny pinch. That's all you've got to do. It's no big deal. You don't have to get on your knees. You don't have to pray to him. But to show your allegiance, take that little pinch and throw it in the fire. And then you're welcome. You cannot come in until you do that. And there were believers who said, we're having no part of it. So do you see how the early believers would say, that must be the anti-Messiah. In fact, Rome killed many, many believers. The, the early Christians, they said, look just like Jews. We're going to kill them all. And that's what they did. And they would take the bodies of believers and Nero would take the bodies of believers and, and dip them in tar. And he would put them on poles, line the streets and light them on fire and have parties in his garden by the light of the burning bodies. Yes. <laughs> so, so my point is this. Did he look like the anti-Messiah or an anti-Christ? He sure did. Was he the anti-Christ? Same spirit, but in the end days, we're going to see the same thing play out, guys, where the anti-Messiah will say, you're not going to be able to buy or sell unless you become a part of our system. What's that going to look like? Good question. Yes, sir, you had your hand up. Scripture is very clear that he will possess this man. The anti, the anti-messiah will be possessed by the spirit of Hasatan. I don't understand all that, but I mean, by the Hasatan, by the enemy, not just a demon. What's that going to look like? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to see that. <laughs> okay. So that's a good point. Uh, let's go. I want you to look real quick at four basic approaches to Revelation. Everybody say four. The first one is the preterist view. So we're going to talk about preterism, preterist. Anybody familiar with that? So the preterist view. Everybody say preterists. The preterist view dealt with only with the church in John's day. It was for them. In other words, this already happened. It already took place. We don't even, it, it, it already took place. It had to do with all the seven churches in John's day and the, and the believers in John's day. Preterism. It's already done. Okay. There are some churches that still teach that today doesn't matter to us. It happened to the early church, and so we really don't need to study all this. Number two, the historicist. What do you think that means? You see the word history in there, don't you? The historicist view. It's the history of the church as a whole. So now this is... What's the difference between this and this? This is saying that Revelation has to do with the church as a whole, from the time of Messiah's resurrection till till now. It, it's, okay, so maybe the early church was, you had a church from such and such age that was Smyrna, and now maybe we're the last church, we might be Laodicea. How many have ever heard that taught? That's what they're teaching. Do they lose this concept? Sure. They're saying we are the church throughout history can be compared to the seven churches. That's kind of the historical aspect. What would be the third? Would be the poetic. Everyone say poetic. So the poetic view of Revelation is kind of just what it sounds. It's poetical. It's it's uh, it's allegories and it's images and it's symbols. Well, where would we make sense of that? Now watch this, because there are people who teach the poetic view says this that Revelation 
is only speaking to the individual. In other words, it's what you, it's what the Holy Spirit is saying to you, not to the church. How might we see that? Okay, so in other words, you, you get the book of Revelation and you read it, and you can certainly understand, you could, in other words, it, it applies to you. It's like the Spirit saying, huh, okay, I read about the, just an example, I read about um, the lukewarmness. Well, maybe, maybe I need to get more fired up. So that, that'll be for me. I'll claim that. I, I need to get, how many could be more fired up for the Lord, right? For Yeshua. We all could. So maybe that is an image for me. But you might be reading it and you come across something else and you go, Oh, that's speaking to me today. Poetic. Nothing to do with history. It has to do with the Holy Spirit speaking to the individual in poetry. This is how people see that. Yes. But no, they actually, the people who teach this as poetic say it is the word of God. But it's, it's, that's just for you personally. In other words, it's for the individual to learn from it. It's poetry. We can learn from it. Let, uh, somebody else had their hand up. Who else? Two. Yes. Okay. Well, well, what have, what about this? What about the letters to the seven Kehilat, the seven churches? What would the poetic person say that was? They would say that's poetry, that God is speaking to you through poetry. The, there you go. So you're getting it. Yes. Right. There you go. You're, yes. Okay. Debbie. Okay. So we understand the poetic has to do with the person, the individual. Anybody else? I don't want to miss a hand. We have questions or comments. And we're just into the introduction. We don't even get into the reading of it yet. So. Okay, let's look at the last, and by all means, I'm giving you the four major. So these are not the only ways that people see it, but these are the four major ways that people teach Revelation. The fourth is the futurist view. So that is saying this, that Revelation deals with the end times, that it's prophetic, and that it deals with the end times, that the futuristic view of Revelation is to say, it's coming. This is what's going to happen in the last days. And this is where I would say as a body of believers that we have probably approached it this way. And this is the way that I teach it. This is what's happening. The preterist view, what was it, guys? It's already happened to whom? The early seven Kehilat, the early seven churches. What's the historicist? Church history, thank you very much, on a large scale for 2,000 years. And we may be the Laodicean church. That's the last. Okay, what about poetic? What was poetic? Personal. That's, that's, that's where they, that's where the personal person that God's speaking to you poetically from the book. And then the fourth is futuristic in the end times. How many of you would say you believe this way? Oh, you just stole my thunder, Leslie. <laughs> you just stole my thunder. Here's what I'm going to challenge you because I was going to ask you this. Do you believe this way? And you'd say no. Do you believe this way? No. This way? No. How many would say this way? And I think we'd all raise our hands. But see, we're thinking like Greeks when we talk that way. A Hebrew would say, we can look at it, who was, who is, who is to come. See, did it happen? It did. It was fulfilled this way. Could it be that maybe it's a picture prophetically of the history of the church as a whole? Shake your heads, yes. Could it be that when you read the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach Kodesh, is speaking to you personally? Ah. Now, not to be confused with scriptures, it, remember what, remember what scripture says. Scripture is not to be taken out of its context to be applied on an individual basis. 
In other words, Scripture will never contradict itself. So if there's a contradiction, you're not going to pull Scripture to say, well, I think I'll just take that one for me. Look at it on what it really means. If it applies to your heart and to your life, you can apply it. But there's not just one little nugget there that says, this is for Debbie personally and nobody else. Are y'all getting that? You got it. Thank you. Can this be futuristic? Of course. And I think as a whole, as a teacher, this is how I teach it. We are in those days. Whether or not you're a pre-trib, a mid-trib, or a post-trib, I think we are there. Personally, I love, I love what, uh, Dr. Missler used to say. Dr. Missler used to say this. He'd say, the bride of Messiah as the bride, we will be watching the book of Revelation from the mezzanine. <laughs> kind of like Amy is up in the eagle's nest, running everything. She can look out and see over here, and she can see over here, and she can see it over here, and she can see the whole service unfolding. Personally, I believe as the bride of Messiah, we will be watching from the mezzanine. Could, could I be wrong? Yeah, I could be. <laughs> we need more chairs up there. So see this as a whole. See the book of Revelation as a whole. Okay? Think with a Hebrew mindset. Don't think in your boxes. Well, that's not to say that there are some scriptures that are very, what we would say, kind of boxy. But, and that's okay. But think with your whole mind. Amen? I hope that doesn't sound weird to you. Does that sound weird to you guys to think like that? Okay. Questions or comments? I see some hands. Yes. Say that again. I'm not following you. Yes. Thank you. It's a prophetic. It, it can be cyclical. The Hebrew mindset with time is not linear. It, although there is a beginning and an ending to time, but time does this. There are cycles. It's, it's, uh, it, even as our seasons, even as the seasons of life. They're cycles. Everyone say cycles. That's a good point. So can we see that this happened at one time or another? It sure did, but it will come to pass. This will come to pass. The book of Revelation will come to pass. And we will see it come to pass. I personally believe we'll see it come to pass. I think we're in those days. How many of you would say that too? So, so let's go. Let's just begin our journey now. Are you all ready? Turn your neighbor and say, I'm ready. All of this was said to get you to kind of establish a basis to see. All right. Chapter 1, the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. Notice this is not John's revelation. This is the revelation of Yeshua. The revelation of Yeshua Messiah, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and he signified it by his messenger, his angel, unto his servant John. Notice the chain of what I would say the chain of command. When it says God, it's speaking of the Father. But then we see the message is revealed to Yeshua. It's given to Yeshua. Who does Yeshua give the message to? The angel takes it to John. There's that chain of command. Watch that. As we read this, understand this, we are in no wise taking away from who Yeshua is. You're going to see a mention of the Ruach HaKodesh, or the spirit of, of Adonai. But one God. Now try to wrap your Greek minds around that. These things must shortly come to pass. And so we have, we have an issue here with the, with some folks who say, well, you know, Rabbi, my grandma's been saying it's going to happen, and her grandma said it's going to happen, and their grandma said it's going to happen. And it ain't happened yet. I don't think it's ever going to happen. These things must shortly come to pass. 2,000 years ago, and we're still waiting. Well, I would look at it two ways. Let's look at it that we are in the last days. When did the last days start? The, no, <laughs> the day it began, Roger. <laughs> the last... 
when Yeshua, listen, when Yeshua, some would say when Israel became a nation, that began the last days. Actually, remember a day with Adonai is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. I look at history as this. I think that there's, there, remember seven, we talked about seven. How many days are in a week? How many, how many days in, I believe, and remember the weeks are, the whole calculator thing, the calendar thing is Adonai's plan. So I believe that there's 6,000 years, six days, we're coming into the 7,000th or the seventh day. It's the day of Shabbat. It's the thousand years when Messiah will reign. We are at that time, guys. That's how I see it. Okay. So I believe that we're coming into that day. Yes. Um, I do if you study history. I think it is. That's a whole other aspect, but I do. I think we are coming into that season. Now, if you'll watch this, if Yeshua, if you, when Yeshua died and rose again, we've, it's been 2,000 years, right? We have 4,000 years from the beginning of time to the time of Yeshua. Then we have 2,000 years added on to that. Four, five, six, what happens in the seventh? Shabbat. So I believe that Yeshua is going to come back. He's going to rule and reign for 1,000 years, as Scripture says. And by the way, if I can point this out to you, there... Revelation is pointing you back. There are many, many scriptures that if you study what we would say the first covenant or the Old Testament speaks of these things as well. If you'll read Daniel, Daniel was very apocalyptic. You know, Daniel uh, on a whole other rabbit trail, but let me share this with you. Daniel was so right on about history that the scholars, there were scholars who were not believers that said Daniel must have written it after it happened. Because there's no way that a man could prophesy it to the T. Alexander the Great, dividing up the nations to his generals. And I mean, he just, to the T, guys. So we have two books in the Bible that are very apocalyptic that speak of these things coming. Um, Daniel was one. Revelation is another. Okay. Where was I going with all this? I forget. What were we talking about before Daniel? Yes. Okay. So go back to that. Thank you. Go back to that scripture. If if we are in the last two days of this thing, which I personally believe that we are, we are in the last days. There's a scripture in the book of, uh, help me out, Abba. It says, in two days, but on the third day, he will raise us up. I'm, I'm thinking that that's speaking of that day and that season that we are in. Um, go back to the, if we're going to look at the word shortly, how many of you have another word there for shortly? Soon? And people would say it's been 2,000 years. Well, let's look at it another way. And tachyon in the Greek, everybody say tachyon, tachyon, shortly come to pass. This is literally what this means if you studied in the language. It's where we get the word uh, tachometer. It's that thing that if you look at it in your car that tells you the speed, your tachometer, your is a a tachometer, tomato, tomato, you know. (laughs) It's, It's that thing that tells you swiftly. And so here's the, here's the concept of this. When these things happen, it's going to happen. Boom, 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 boom. Not one event here, seven years later, another event here, ten years later, another event. That when these things come, it's going to happen suddenly or swiftly. I find that interesting because just uh, when we, when we, I forget how many months ago, but the word of Adonai spoke to me and spoke to my heart and said, watch for things to happen suddenly. Watch for the suddenlies. Do you guys remember that word? Watch for the suddenlies. And that's what this is saying. That when these things happen, it's going to happen one right after the other, after the other. You're going to see the four horsemen in this thing. You're going to see all these things. 
And it's not going to be, okay, a little box here, and we'll give it a little rest, and then we'll get it a little here. These things happen quickly. That's why the people on the earth are going, what's happening? It's the book of Isaiah where he says he's taking the world and he's turning it upside down. People are going, this is crazy. That's what Revelation's all about. But it all points to Yeshua. It all points to Yeshua. The king is coming back. How many know that? No, I'm not talking Elvis. The king is coming back. Yeshua the Messiah, the king of kings, Malachim, he's coming back to rule and reign, and he's turning things on their ear in this world system. And everybody, that I want you to look around tonight as you drive home, as you wake up tomorrow, I want you to remember this. Everything that we see is temporary. Everything we see is temporary. And Yeshua is coming back to change these things up. The only thing that's going to last in our lives, if I could say it this way, is what we do in love. Not religion. What we do in love. Sorry if that sounds a little new age. I don't mean to sound a little new age. But Adonai is a God of love. We love Him, we love His Word, and we love each other. And that's what's going to last. Everything else. The clothes on our back. The beautiful chairs. This beautiful building, as beautiful as it is, is not going to last. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. How many are looking forward to the new things? The new beginnings. We'll have new bodies. Aren't you looking forward to the new body? All things new. Behold, I make all things new. So he's making all things new. This stuff is temporary. So it's shortly coming to pass. Look at verse 2. Who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua Messiah and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that reads and and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Blessed is he that reads and they that hear. Everybody say Shema. So they that, the guy that's teaching it and those that are listening. Shema, to hear. Yeshua said many times, be careful. He said, be careful how you hear. We're living in such a day and age where you better be careful as to what teachers you listen to. What things you, and I'm not just talking about letting it go in in one ear and out the other. Those things that you hear that affect you. We gather tonight talking about, we've only been into, we're into three verses of Revelation. But understand this, my point in standing here is not, it's not just to be a, a history teacher or to tell you, you know, it's easy to stand. I could stand here and teach the word and tell you stories. But the one thing that I want you to know is the Word is supposed to change us. The awesome responsibility of hearing the Word. Not, I don't want you to just go out tonight and say, you know, Rabbi, that was a great class and really enjoyed that message. I'm, I'm hoping you get changed by it. I'm hoping that it does something to you to say, you know what? He's here in this place and He changed me. The Word changed me. I almost brought in today my sword in my office. It's a very large double-edged sword. And that sword is a picture of the Word of Adonai. Two edges. It's the first covenant and the second covenant. And they both come to a point. And that point is Yeshua. The point is Yeshua. Everybody say Yeshua. And everything that that word will do, it'll cut us. It'll cut the things off of us that, that shouldn't be there. It'll change our minds about things. It'll challenge us to do things. As I study this, I'm telling you, I'm challenged all the time to be a more loving person, to be a more kind person, to love Him even more. Anybody challenged by that? Are you challenged by the Word? Is it cutting those things away that you say, oh, that needs to be cut? Sometimes getting cut hurts. When Yeshua comes back, He is the Word. And what comes out of His mouth? A sharp two-edged sword. I remember as a kid, there used to be a picture. 
And I, I was just, this picture was kind of weird looking to me, but here is this man on this white horse, and somebody had painted this, and he's coming back with the armies of heaven, and out of his mouth is coming this big sword. And it looks so weird to me. I look, I saw that, like, what is that? And somebody told me, well, that's, that's the Messiah, and when he comes back, he's got a sword in his mouth. I'm thinking, a sword in his mouth? Again, we're talking allegory. What does that mean? Is he going to have a sword sticking out of his mouth to kill the anti-Messiah? No. That's the word. The word is carrying the word. He's speaking the word. And that word will sometimes cut us and cause us. And sometimes the word hurts us. It'll hurt sometimes when things are cut away. Relationships are cut away we shouldn't be in. Or we're doing something we shouldn't. Cut, cut, cut. Anybody ever been cut by the word? I got a, the other day, I got a little cut in my hand. I got a little cut. I've been getting little cuts lately. I don't understand this. Got a cut over here. I got a little cut over there. Just banister, going down the banister, holding the banister, and ding, just a little cut. I went, ow. I tell you what, that little cut hurt. It took about a week for it to heal up. Sometimes those cuts are painful. Last night we had, we got a little puppy. He's just a little, I say little, it's about this, it's a fat puppy. And I was laying on the floor and that puppy decided to come up. And, uh, so I just put my head down like that and it started to, yeah, it started to nibble. I say nibble, it attacked me, the daggone thing. And it got my ear. You might see that little spot. I told my wife, I said, guess what? I said, um, the dog pierced my ear. I have a hole in my ear. I have blood coming out. A little ten-week-old puppy. It's like a vampire. Like, ah, you know. Yeah, I'm still alive. <laughs> the dog is too. But but I have this little hole. It hurt when it cut. It's just a little thing, but it cut. The word of Adonai is like that. That it'll cut us and it'll take those things. Sometimes, you know, being a believer in Yeshua is not always easy or fun. It'll cut us. How will we react to that cutting? How are you going to react? I challenge you. I hope you come back to this class. I have a lot to teach. But it's not just about teaching so that you can go out and say, well, now we're very informative. You know, I've often thought about maybe passing out papers at the end of a class. If you come to every class and say, I, I, you know, yeah, you graduated from the Messianic, the Messianic, and that wouldn't be a bad idea. But I don't want you to leave puffed up to say, we got all this information now. That's not the whole course. The whole course is this. It's all pointing to Yeshua and his kingdom and what's coming. And we need to be ready for what's coming. How many of you are ready for what's coming? Turned off by religion and hypocrisy? Hate being preached to? Something missing in your life? You haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. I was trying. King Kings, how are you doing tonight? All right, I like a little life. I like a little shouting. So let's try again. How you guys doing tonight? That's what I like to hear. All right. Let me just introduce myself as this random, extremely tall guy just got on stage. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at King of Kings. and I'm excited to be here this evening to teach this evening for you guys. And I don't know what else to say, but I'm excited. I'm also nervous. I'm also sweating. I'm also whatever you want to say, but I'm here and I'm excited to be here. Thank you guys. Um, just to give you a little background about myself, my, my wife is Maggie. She's not in this room right now. She's doing the live stream in the back. And so I want to say good evening to the live stream uh, people as well, as I know throughout the world people are watching. How What a blessing through technology that we get to take the gospel and spread it throughout the world from just right here in this place. That's a blessing. That's a miracle. That's a work of God right there. But I hail from Colorado, Denver, Colorado. Anybody ever been to Colorado before? All right. Hey, 
Anybody, are you from Colorado? Yes. Yes. One of you. The Rockies are still horrible, but that's okay. I'm excited. I uh, originally started uh, my ministry in Southern California with Dr. David Jeremiah and then served for five years. Uh, oh, is someone from Southern California? All right. Hey, way to go. All right. So I started out there and then moved uh, back to Colorado, which is my home, and was a youth pastor for five years, working with high school youth. So that's why I like a lot of energy. That's why I like to talk loud. And it's why if I see any of you on a cell phone, I may yell at you and tell you to put it away. So we're going to roll that way. But tonight, God has really laid a message on my heart about vision. Now, when I think about vision, we always think about sight. And when I think about sight, I think about what are we looking at? What are we looking for? And for my wife and I, it's been a season where we've really had to look at the vision that God has for our lives and how that works with the calling he's put on our lives. And we've really been challenged in that. We were visiting some friends in the States recently and, and, in Can- and some friends from Canada really challenged us in two things when it comes to vision. The first one was, he said, people respond to vision. And we had to think of that because at the time we were traveling and we were talking with people and we're telling them about what we're doing here at King of Kings. And they're like, okay, so why are you in Israel? We're like, well, God told us to go there. And they're like, okay, but why are you in Israel? And we couldn't answer that question. And we thought, we got a problem. And it made me think of the vision that ministries have or people have and and what if we didn't have vision? What if the, the vision statement for King of Kings is not what it is and it said, King of Kings is to be compelling, not Messiah-centered, not spirit and filled, not disciple-making, but we're just to be empowered or compelling. Do you think anyone would really want to come see that? People wouldn't really want to come see just compelling. We want to see the Messiah. We want to see Yeshua. We want to see the work of God. That's why we come. That's why we're here. That's why we serve. So we need a vision. The second thing was to commit to the future and not compare to the past. I know I've done that. Coming here, uh, it's, it's a funny that we would, that we would be here this weekend. My wife and I, we didn't even know what God had for us a year ago. And we sold our house and we moved everything here. And it was actually this weekend a year ago, we first arrived in Israel. And now a year later, we kind of know what we're doing, but we're still here. So we know we're in the right place. We know we're in God's will. It brought to mind scriptures where it talked about Elisha and Elisha. And when he said, when he was called, he turned and what did he do? He burned his yoke. He slaughtered everything and he left. He didn't look back. He didn't compare. He didn't say, you know what I used to do in my church or my congregation? You know what I used to do at this organization? Or do you know what I used to do? Do you know who I am? He didn't do that picked up the calling that God put on his life, and he started moving. That's the fire that burns in me this evening. That's what we're going to talk about. Before we get started, I'm still a little nervous, so we're going to pray. You bow your heads with me. God, we're here this evening to talk about you. God, as as, as the song was, Yeshua, be the center this evening. Let your name be glorified. Let your name be lifted high. Let your message be given. Let your words come through me. And Father, let us clear our sight, let us clear all things in front of us, and seek after your vision. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You know, as I thought about vision, I thought about sight, the first person that came to mind was Helen Keller. And the reason she came to mind, someone asked her once, said, 
What would be worse than being born blind? And you know what her answer was? She said, having sight without vision. Helen Keller said that. It brings to mind and it brings new meaning to this verse that really was my springing point for this evening, which is in Proverbs 29. It's verse 18, first part. Uh, the King James Version says, where there is no vision, the people perish. You know, even if there is no vision, the people perish. But what about this? If I have no vision, I'm going to perish. If my life doesn't have vision, if I can say I'm here, I'm doing God's work, but I have no clue what I'm doing, eventually we're going to perish. And I don't mean in a physical sense, I'm talking in a spiritual sense, that our, slow, our souls slowly dry out because we're not seeking the vision, the plan that God had for us. We're just doing what we know we're supposed to be doing. We get caught in the rut. We get caught in the motions. And all of a sudden, a year later, you're like, I don't even like being here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why God called me here. And we're just dry. So we don't want to see people perish. So my first question to you this evening, the first point is, what is your vision? When you look at your life, when you look at the reason why you're here in this land, when you look like why I serve Yeshua, what is your vision? A lot of us would say that our vision is our calling. And we all have a calling. Some of us are still searching for it. Some of us know it exactly what it is, but we all have a calling. And for my wife and I, this season of our life is to be called to Israel because we love the people of Israel. We love the Jewish nation. We love being here. I remember when my wife and I first met, she had a heart for Israel. I come from a congregation that has a heart for Israel. And when she met me and we started to date, she said, well, do you think you'd live overseas? And I looked her straight in the eye and I said, I'm never living outside the United States. I had great vision then, didn't I? <laughs> but God had to change my heart. And we all have a calling on our lives. The number one calling on every single one of our lives is to serve Yeshua because he says in Matthew 28 to go and do what? Make disciples. To go, not to stay, to go, not to hold, to go. For me, a calling means to go or the willingness to go, but also it means to obey. One of the hardest parts of a calling in life is to obey, to surrender it all and go. I'm reminded when it comes to our calling that we have to review it every day. Every morning, every day, my wife and I use a term that we call, say, we hold it loose. We hold everything loosely because it can change. Remember, I said I never wanted to live outside the United States. I held that tight. And then God did a work in my heart, and we came here and visited. And all of a sudden, I remember my wife reminds me of this every day. I looked at her one day, and I went, eh, I could live here. God heard that. He goes, finally, let's do this. But it says in Second Peter 1 verse 10, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For you do these things, you will never stumble. When was the last time you reviewed your calling? When was the last time you sat down and said, you know what? Am I doing everything that God is asking me to do? Have I surrendered it all? Is there anything that I'm still holding on to? The position that God has put me in, am I doing it well? Am I following his, obe- uh, his commandments? Am I being obedient? Am I doing the work of God? I know I'm guilty of when being in ministry that I just go with it and I just start doing it. And I would just get in the flow and I get busy. How many of you know that you're busy every day? Are there busy people in here? A couple people? Are some of you on vacation? Is that? Can I have your job? <laughs> I would love that. Oh, I'm not busy. Work one day a week. It's perfect. We all have a lot going on, but the importance of reviewing what God has for every single one of our lives makes a difference. It also refreshes us. 
It also brings life to that tired soul, that it drinks in the the water and the, and the life of God. You know, vision will change from time to time. Your calling stays the same. We're all called to go and do the work of Yeshua, but our vision changes from time to time. And so tonight I want to share with you for a little bit the vision that God has really put on my heart. In the last weeks, as my wife and I were just in the United States traveling and seeing friends and coming back, I really fell upon God. He said, you don't have vision. You got to find it because I want you to do things and you're not listening. And I said, all right. So my wife and I spent a week just taking time at night and saying, what is it that drives you? What do you love to do? What is it that God is doing that you want to be a part of? And we came down to two things. We together love to empower and inspire people. And so I want to share tonight just a little bit what it is to empower people. You know, there's an author. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. His name is Ralph Waldo Emerson. Anybody heard of him before? A couple people. All right, we got some readers. Good to hear. He says this, people only see what they're prepared to see. I read this and it touched that part of my heart where I love to empower people. And I really looked at it and I said, people only see what they're prepared to see. So we got to prepare a lot more people. You know what I love about being in Israel is I get to work with people from all over the world, that everyone comes from a different walk of life and everyone comes from a different season of life. They've been doing a ministry or they've been a part of an organization or they're just here to volunteer or they're just being there. People are part of all walks of life here, but they all want to serve Yeshua. And so for a brief moment, whatever brief moment, or for long term that we have another person in our life, this is my heart speaking, we should make the most to make a difference. That when they leave this place, whether it's Israel, whether it's King of Kings, whether it's a ministry, whether it's your home, whether it's your family, no matter what it is, when they leave, they are changed. They are not the same. How many of you would love to still be the same person you were 25 years ago? Now, there are some... I, I see a couple older people being like, hey, you know, I could go back. You know, don't have to go to bed at 9, get up after 3 a.m. Are there some people like that? I don't want to pick on people. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But we don't want to go back to who we were 25 years ago. But yet sometimes we treat people like that. We say to people, you come here, you're part of our community, or you're a friend of mine, or you're part of this life, but I'm not going to invest in you. I'm going to take from you what I need so then I can move on. Does that sound like the work of Yeshua? When I go back to Matthew, does it say, go and take from everyone so that you become better? No. It says to give. Because when you give, others give. And when we give Yeshua, we give life, don't we? I want to give life. I want to give new hope. I want to give a new future. I want to give Yeshua. I want to give God to every person that I can. Can I get an amen? amen. Do you want to do that? Do you want to see lives changed? Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been told the gospel by another person? Someone else told you about Yeshua. Okay, I heard Andy Stanley say this one. He said, you want to know what the greatest thing about love is? Is someone loved you so much they told you the gospel. Not that they told you I loved you. Not that they told you they liked you. Not that they told you you're part of this or you're part of that. Or They said, I gave you the gospel. That's love. And he got that example from Yeshua himself who put himself on a cross. That's the greatest gift is to be told 
the gospel. None of us, and I can say this probably pretty confidently, none of us would be in this room if someone had not loved us so much they told us about Yeshua. None of us. So our call is to go and do that. But now we have to have vision through our talents, through our gifts, through what Yeshua has for us. We need to go and do that. And it's a part of the body. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, this is a long part, so if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 11, and we're going to read the verse 16. All right? Ready? Here we go. So Yeshua himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for the work of service, so that the body of Yeshua may be built up until... We all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Yeshua. Let's stop right there a second. That we would whole measure, we would attain to measure, that we would measure of the fullness of Yeshua. So he's already calling us to some pretty big things, right? I don't know about you, but I don't know if I could walk every shoe that you shoe, or a shoe print that Yeshua walked. And I got big shoes, all right? goes on to say, Then we no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown from here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speak the truth in love. Remember that part? Speak the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is in the head, him who is the head, that is Yeshua. For him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in each other as each part does its work. Now that's where I get excited. I want to see every person in this room live that out. I want to see every person in this world live that out. That's what drives my heart. We, as a body of believers, we want to drive each other closer to Yeshua. That's what we're called to do. One of the greatest things I love about empowering people is when you empower people, it's not an instant result. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes relationship. When someone invests in another person's life and they empower them to be more or to be better or they empower them in a gift or they give them the opportunity to speak out or to to do something. What I love to see is years later, that person working in that gift, not to say, look what I did, but look what God did through having the heart for others to build their vision for what God has planned for their lives. I got to be a little part of it. Yeshua used me for a little part of it. I'm thankful he used me. And there are people in our lives that have done that, and we maybe haven't said thank you to them. I can think of mentors along my life, friends in college, pastors that have poured into me, given me opportunities. People have let me fail, fall flat on my face, and then say, okay, let's try again. That's what my heart beats for. There's a story I heard once. Can I tell you a story? You guys like stories? All right, good. Making sure you're still there. I was at a youth conference once in Southern California, and I really went to the conference in Southern California. I didn't just go to the beach. I went to the conference. And there was a speaker from Great Britain, and he was speaking about empowering people. And he told a story. He said, you know, when I was a youth pastor, a youth leader, I had 
this small parish, and I had a lot of rough kids. These kids didn't know Yeshua. Their parents were in and out. They were latchkey kids is what he called them. And he said, I, I noticed one day that one of them, even though he was rough, would stay after and kind of help pick up from time to time. And so I started to build a relationship with him. And over months, I learned that he knew how to play the guitar. And so he said, you know what? Why don't you play with our volunteer one week? The kid was like, no. Are you kidding me? You know what my friends would do to me if they saw me doing that? I'm not going to do that. So he kept working at him, and he went after him, and he tried to get him to do this, and he just wouldn't do it. So one week, he goes to his volunteer that leads worship and says, I need you to put your arm in a sling. We're going to fake that you broke your arm. We're going to make him play. That's true love right there. So this young man comes to the youth group that week, and he's like, look, he's in a sling. He can't play. You have to play. And so he plays, and he loves it. And he keeps doing it. He keeps writing songs. Ends up that young man's name is Matt Redman. One person saw a gift, invested in it, and that person's now changing the world through music. All because he empowered one person. We never know who we're going to empower, but we know we're going to empower someone for the kingdom. That's what it's about. There could be other Matt Redmonds. There could be other world leaders. There could be other world changers. There could be other preachers. There could be, it doesn't matter what it is, other people in your life. And if you give them an opportunity, they could amaze you. Normally, when um, we talk about vision, we start to get this big picture. And then we hone it down and we make it something else. But the next point I want to talk about that we have to be careful of when we talk about vision is don't get up and don't get caught up in one aspect of your vision. We can get so focused on one part of our vision that we miss what's going on around us. Let me put it this way. How many of you have cell phones? Well, I got more hands on cell phones than I did anything else. That's amazing. How many of you have been tweeting, texting, looking at an email while walking and walked into a pole or a brick wall? <laughs> I got two people to raise their hand. All right. Some people will admit it. When we get so distracted with our vision, when we keep our head down, when we keep walking, we're going to lose sight. We're going to run into things. I did that once. Here in Jerusalem, I was with a group that was here visiting, and we were showing them around the city, and I put my head down. And you know what I was using? Google Maps. I'm using navigation. I have my head down, and because of my height, some of those street signs are a little bit lower for me. (laughs) Oh, I saw it. Like, that close. And I did the, the matrix lean. And I, you know what the first thing we usually do is? We look around and go, does anybody else see that? <laughs> the next thing is, we probably should be careful. You know what the third thing is? We usually go back to doing it. With our vision, when we get stuck on just one point of our vision, we tend to notice something's wrong, we look up, but then we put our head back down. One of the things we have to be careful of when God gives us vision is to always keep our eyes up and looking up to see the work of what God is doing, but also to make sure we're where we're supposed to be. I remember times where I've walked home at night, and maybe some of you have done this. You walk home, and all of a sudden you get home, and you're like, how the heck did I get here? How did I not run into another brick wall? We have to make sure our eyes are up, that we're looking to the future. We're looking past just the present problem, that we're looking past just the present thing, and we look to the whole thing and saying, is my whole life devoted to my whole vision, or have I narrowed it down to just a little bit? Because whatever vision God gives you, it's a big one, not a small one. As my wife likes to say, God is bigger than any one of our dreams. 
So whatever vision you have, God is bigger than it, but he wants to use you in that. When I first started in youth ministry, when I moved back to Colorado, started with a youth group, and I started teaching, and our vision was to attract those who wanted to know the gospel and to make sure that we always preach the name of Yeshua and to be entertaining and to do fun games and to send kids home sick from eating things they shouldn't have eaten and then make it the parents' problem. That's what we did. And over time, I put my head down and just started going, just going after it. And I kind of lost sight of part of the vision that God had given us. And at one point, and this is not to brag on anything, at one point we grew up to 100, about 140 to 150 high school students. And I was so plowed ahead and I, God had to humble me and renew my vision that he needed me to look my eyes up. That in a, a two-week period, in a two-week period, we went from 150 kids to 20. Because God had to get my attention and say, where's your vision? Where are you looking? Who are you working for? Are you doing my name? Are you doing my work? Or are you doing your work? Listen, we got to be careful that our vision doesn't supersede God's plan. Because God's going to give us vision. God's going to give us a plan. But we have to make sure that we're always checking to make sure that we're doing it. Third point I want to talk about tonight is include others in your vision. One of the best things you can do is include others in your vision. When God gives you a vision, write it down and tell others about it. The reason we do this is, one, it brings it to life. It is very easy to have vision and then say to others, I have vision, but then do nothing about it. What we need to do is say, I have a vision, I have a plan, I know what God has for me, and I have to bring life to it, but I have to tell others. The second reason we do that is because you have a greater chance of actually following through. One of the things I read in Mark Batterson's book, The Circle Maker, he talks about working through your prayer journal and working through your time of prayer. He says one of the best things you can do is always write it down because you're more likely to do it and then tell others about it because you're more likely to follow through. There are visions that God has put in every single one of your lives. There's visions that are inside of every single one of your heads that you know that God is behind. I want to know that we as believers empowered believers take the power that is put inside of us with the Holy Spirit and we take on this world and we conquer this world and we conquer the gates of hell and we bring the name of Yeshua to the world. Is that your vision? Have you written it down to say, I want to change the world? Listen, every single one of us can change our worlds. We can change our realities is what I like to say. You can change what's going on around you if you simply seek Yeshua, and chase after his name. When we have vision and we include others, we change others' lives. Picture, if I I can, we're coming up on 30 years, King of Kings, in Israel next month. 30 years. Woo! All right. I'm 31. What if 30 years ago, Wayne and Ann and Jim, what is Jim's? Kathy had just said, you know what, we have a vision to do something in Israel, and it's going to involve four people for the next 30 years. How many lives would be changed in 30 years? Probably four. The four that sat in that room. The four that said, we're going to do something. There are people here that live here in Israel. This is your home. There are people that volunteer here, and you're here for a short, temporary time. I want to encourage you to say, when you have a vision, go after it. Wholeheartedly go after the vision that God has given you. Because you never know where it's going to lead you. You never know what God's going to do in your life. Think of all the people throughout the word that have chased after the vision 
that God gave them, and it changed the world. And as they came back home, it changed everything. My fourth and final point is this. Make sure God is the center of your vision. Can I say that again? Make sure God is the center of your vision. It is very easy to take a vision and make it one of the best-sounding mission statement visions that you can ever hear of your life. But if it does not involve God, you are not going to bring glory to his name, and you're going to find yourself pretty dry after a little bit because you have not been in his presence, you've not been in his place. Now, I'm not saying that every person running a business or anything has to say God is the center of all business, but involve him. Tithe. Give back. Do something about it. When God is the center, he makes the difference. When God is the center of your vision, you're reflecting what he did. Do you remember his vision, his plan? He made us the center. He sent his son, paid a price, and made us the center of his vision for this earth, that we would be in relationship with him, that we would love him and honor him and glorify him. He made us the center, so why would I not give back to him and make him the center of my life and my vision? When God is the center you will always find direction. Have any of you ever seen uh, or had used GPS? Yeah, I have. I almost took my head off. When we use GPS, have, have you, any of you ever heard of it say recalculating? When God is the center, he's your GPS. Sometimes he's going to recalculate your life. He's going to recalculate your, the way you're headed. He's going to change the direction that you're going. Now let me tell you, how many of you have accepted Yeshua and the direction your life was going, wish it was still going in that direction? Raise your hand. Not many. None. None of us at any point in our life when we accepted Yeshua said, I was on a great path. I was headed down the right way. And when I got Yeshua, he messed it all up. Now I'm lost in the woods somewhere. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeshua didn't do that. Yeshua brought us to the center of our lives and said, look what I can do. Look what you're going to do. Look how empowered you are. Look what you are. Look what you can do. Vision. The vision that Yeshua has for every single one of our lives is to love him. And that means to understand the gospel, where, his, where God sent his son down to this earth in human form, lived his life here, paid a, a price, knew what he was going to be taking, knew the suffering he was going to have. And then he forsake it all and said, that's fine, I'll take it. I'm going to take your pain. I'm going to take your punishment. I'm going to take all that there is. You're my vision. You're what I'm fixated on. Do you think Yeshua came here with any other vision but glorifying his Father and saving our lives? That's what he came to do. And he paid that price on a cross. And he rose again three days later and declared that there is nothing in this world that is greater than he and his Father. I want to have vision for that man. I want to have vision for Yeshua. I want to work for him. Can I get an amen? You're listening to Solace Radio, Monta Vista, Colorado. If you like the programming you hear on Solace Radio, please become a partner with us and donate any amount you'd like, and we'd sure appreciate it. And it helps us to reach more and more people around the world with this great message of hope. Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Now back to our program.
matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. Give me just a second, if my computer will cooperate. And its title is Mysterion Babylon. That's the name of our study, Mysterion Babylon. We're going to take a real close analytical look, verse by verse, thought for thought, point for point, of Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. There's lots of folk think they know that they understand all about those those chapters and got it all, you know, wrapped up and and all like that. But we need to be very careful that we understand what's actually said. And this this is a parable. This is a cryptic, if you please, a cryptic description of something that's yet to happen. So before we consider our answer or what we think it is, we need to be sure that we understand what's being said. And we're going to take <clears throat> we're going to take very meticulous trouble, very meticulously analyze what's said. And then, at that point, after we know exactly what's said in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18, after that point, then we'll start looking around for things that might fit. And that's when it's going to get real interesting. So it's going to get, maybe I should say, very sobering to say the least, maybe even scary. Okay? But for the first couple of sessions, you're just going to have to be patient with me because we're going to very meticulously analyze what does it, what does the Bible actually, what, you know, what's being said. So, the, the title of our study is Mysterion Babylon. We're going to do it a little bit unusual. We're going to take a look at each verse individually, and then we're going to write just a little summary of what's, what's being said, because this is cryptic language or a parable language, if you please, to tell some very important truth. In fact, men and women, <clears throat> This is this is so important that there's five whole chapters in the in the Bible de- dedicated to Babylon. Five chapters. There's two chapters in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18. There's two chapters in the book of Jeremiah, chapters 50 and 51. And there's a chapter in the book of Isaiah, chapter 13, dedicated to Babylon. Most of it is in parable or cryptic language, if you please. So it must be real important. You say, well, Harold, you just did this a while back. What are you doing it again for? Well, as as time has gone by, insight has greatly increased, and we, and we need to be sure we got a grip on it, because if God dedicates five chapters to something, we need to understand it, don't we? So there's five chapters. Remember that as we study this. We're going to take a look at the ones in Revelation, making some references back to the ones in <coughs> Jeremiah and, and Isaiah. So let's just jump right into it. Now, I'm going to be reading this to you out of the King James. You may read it out of any any translation you desire. We're going to take a look at some uh, words in the original, we all understand that the New Testament was translated, or the Brit Hadashah, I should say, rather than the New Testament, was translated out of the Greek, <coughs> out of the Greek language. It was preserved for us in Greek. So we're going to be looking at some Greek words. Not going to be doing very many word pictures in this study, and I'm awful glad we got Wade with us here to help us. So let's read Revelation chapter 17 verse 1, and just take a look at what it's saying. And not add, not add anything into it, not take anything away, just simply look and be sure we got a grip of what each verse says. So Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, out of the King James. You may read it out of any one you want to. You'll still come up with the same picture. I've done this whole study through three or four times in about seven different translations, so it ain't going to make no difference. 
Revelation chapter 17 verse 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come unto me, come hither. I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So you'll notice here I've got some words in different colors, and they're real key words to understanding what's being said here. This is being said by an angel, of course, or a messenger from the presence of God or from heaven. Heaven is where he's at. It's his presence. And this angel comes to John, and he says, come here, and I want to show you the judgment. And that's how the King James rendered it. I think most of the other translations will render that word as judgment. And as we look at it in the Greek, it, wait, is that krima? Am I saying that correctly? Krima. And it means a decision, a sentence. Okay. A sentence for or against crimes, a crime or crimes. Well, there's been a decision made. And guess what? It's a divine decision, isn't it? Because this angel's bringing it. And it says, I will show you the, the sentence that has been passed against the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Well, that word <coughs> great right there is the Greek word megas. And it means big or great in the sense of size, of physical size, okay? Not in intensity or, or uh, uh, ascendancy or anything like that, but in size. So this, this thing is big. And that word for uh, whore right there is literally the word in, in the Greek. It's porne, and it means a strumpet. And figuratively, it means an idolater. Well, that's not a, a word we hear a lot about, a strumpet. Let's see what it means, Looking, uh, you know, going to the... To the dictionary to find out what a strumpet is, it's a prostitute, of course, or like a prostitute, like a strumpet, or false, okay. Inconstant, oh buddy, to debauch or to go astray. So, as we look at this word that got translated, you know, as a whore, prostitute, whore, prostitute all the time in these translations, remember that right along with it is this word inconstant or to debauch or to go, go astray. And, <coughs> It's on many waters. So I want you to turn your Bibles with me. I have mine here. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 17. If you're not already open there. Revelation chapter 17, verse 5. And let's read what it says. It says, And upon her head was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So what that's telling us when it says that she was sitting on many waters is this thing is worldwide. This, 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 uh, this strumpet-like entity is worldwide. It's simply what she's setting on many waters. That's what he says in the verse here. It says, I will show you the sentence. Sentence has already been passed. It's a divine sentence against the great, because of the size of the thing, the strumpet that's sitting on many waters. So, as we would summarize that verse, you know, because remember, this is given to us in, in cryptic form or as a parable. Let's see how we could summarize that. Divine sentence has been passed against Mysterion Babylon, a large and strumpetuous entity influencing the entire earth. Can, can we, does that sound acceptable to everybody? Am I, am, are we lying? Are we mis, are we twisting scripture saying that this thing is worldwide? That's what that verse is telling us. And divine sentence in verse one of chapter 17 has been passed against it. Wow. So. Right off the bat, we learn that divine sentence has been passed against it, that its sins or its crimes have been judged, alrighty? So, let's go back now to chapter 17. Let's read it again now. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked to me, saying, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the crema of the great and size whore that sits on many waters. So, 
She's not just sitting on seven little hills in some city in Italy, but it's worldwide, okay? All right. Anybody want to take issue with any of that yet so far? This is an open forum. Just raise your hand or jump up, and we'll get a mic to you, and you can have at it. All righty. Go to verse 2. Verse by verse, carefully looking at it, because when we get down to the judgment that comes on this and why it comes and how it comes, it gets pretty serious, and we need to know. Don't you think if God gives us five chapters in the Bible about Mystery Babylon, he's telling us at least this is important, and you need to know it. You need to know it. Okay, that, that's it's very important. So, already, <clears throat> just looking strictly at what the Scripture says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Oh, my goodness. The fellow fornicators are what? The kings of the earth. Oh, wow. My goodness. If a strumpet is walking the street and you indulge with her, you're no better than she is. You're doing the same thing. Yeah, you're a strumpet. So her fellow strumpets, if you please, are what? The kings of the earth. I didn't say that. Scripture says it. Don't, you know, you can, you can, you can throw tomatoes at me, cabbage, and everything you want to, but I'm just simply making us aware of what Scripture says. The kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The kings, the presidents, the prime ministers of what? Where? Who? Well, the whole world, all the, all the continents, all the seven continents, Europe, Asia, North America, South America, Africa. If I wanted to get all seven, I would say Australia and Antarctica, wouldn't I? The Arctic is not a continent, it's an ice cap. So, the kings, the presidents, the prime ministers of the whole earth are committing fornication with her. They are involved in the same acts of falsehood and debauchery. Okay, we have, We're not trying to define what they are yet. We're going to get to that. Believe you me, we're going to get to it. So as we look at verse 2, we need to realize it's very, very unusual. The inhabitants of the earth, or the people of all seven continents, are intoxicated by what's going on. So this is really unusual. I mean, this is such a, this is, this is absolutely cryptic, to say the least. Because the rulers of the earth are involved in the same activities of the prostitute, the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated. Wow, that's that's quite a riddle, isn't it? You know, the, the kings of the earth are fornicating with this woman who does fornication. She's so good at it, she's the largest one on earth, if you please. And because the rulers are doing it, the inhabitants are getting drunk. Wow, that's unusual. That's that's cryptic to say the least, isn't it? That, that's very unusual. This is a riddle, remember. Why would God give us things as important as Babylon, five chapters in the Bible in a riddle. Why would he do that? Maybe to see if we care enough to work through it, pray through it, study through it, and find out the truth. That's what we need to know. <clears throat> We're supposed to be good stewards of the what of the kingdom of God? The mysteries. Our assignment out there, bond servant fellowship. What's the scripture reference? First or second Corinthians what? Two what? Where it says? That we're, that he has revealed these mysteries to who? To his bondservants. We're bondservants. Those who, what? Who understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Remember, how, how many times have you read in the New Testament, Paul saying, Behold, I show you a mystery, or the wisdom that was given me concerning the mystery, or that you pray for us that we might be able to preach this mystery? Yeah, there's lots of mysteries. There's lots of things to be solved. So you can't just go surfing on the net or go, you know, jump in to find popular, uh, uh, popular opinion and, and solve the mystery. You know, crack the riddle if you please. Okay. So th- this is very unusual. 
the rulers of the earth. They're involved in the same fornication, for, fornicatious activities as this prostitute, but the inhabitants of the earth are intoxicated. Isn't that interesting? Let's, let's keep going. Let's read that verse again. Be sure that Harold's not misleading you. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. It's worldwide. Any comments so far? This is an open forum. Are you with me? Are you studying with me? I'm, I'm doing this first week to hope to drive you to go home and study this and, and dig into this thing. I want you to do that. Alrighty, so here we go. So he's, he's seen this woman sitting on this, this beast, and so he, this, this, this angel is going to give him understanding or explanation. So here we go. He says, I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to explain this to you. Remember what he told him in, uh, verse one right here. He said, whoops. He says, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore. So the main thrust of the study is the judgment that comes upon this Babylon entity, but he's going to take us through several other little things to get us there. So the first thing that he shows John is he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Well, let's just back up and read in our Bibles. Turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. And first, let's read verses 1 through 7. Let's see if we can find this very same beast at other places in Scripture. Let's use Scripture to, to explain Scripture. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. Well. Gosh, it sounds like this right here, don't it? Let's keep reading. Verses 1 through 7. So, it said right here, the names of blasphemy. Who has the names of blasphemy? The woman or the beast? The beast does. So, that's just a little thing to keep in mind as we as we go here. It's not the woman at this point. The woman's got a cup full of stuff that we, we're going to read about. Her cup is what her, condemns her. But the beast is these names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat in great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is likened to the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints, that's us, that's why we need to understand this thing, and to overcome them, and power was given to him over all the, all kindreds and tongues and nations. All right, now let's, let's skip down and read verses 13 and 14 to help us identify this thing. So as we can, so as we won't violate, if you place the parable, you know, if, if Jesus gave us a, a parable about sowing seed, and uh, we're trying to uh, tell a parable about, uh, you know, picking blackberries or, or uh, you know, gathering eggs, and it has nothing to do with what he said, we need to be careful. We need to back up and reconsider, don't we? So let's read verses thirteen and fourteen, just so as we'll know who this kingdom is. Okay, verses thirteen and fourteen of, of Revelation. Uh, Chapter 13 says, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down 
excuse me, I'm sorry, chapter 17, excuse me, please, I'm sorry. Let's go back to chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. And it says, These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. They shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called faithful and true. So this is a final kingdom, a final authority on earth, if you please, that gets destroyed by Yeshua himself, isn't it? Let's go to Daniel chapter 7 now. Read verses 7 and 8. Daniel chapter 7, if you would, because this, these, this beast that we just read about in Revelation chapter 17, verses 13 and 14, we just read about Yeshua destroying it, didn't we? That's what he just did. So let's go to, to Daniel, see if we can find this same beast and identify it. See, you know, see how it plays into this. So we'll understand what's been told us in this, in this cryptic uh, description. Daniel chapter 7. Let's read first verses 7 and 8 of Daniel 7. I'm reading from the King James. It's not going to make any difference what translation you read from. It says, After this I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceeding. And it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was, diff- it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Well, here we go. There's our ten horns again. Well, let's read about it. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn two eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now let's just slip on down to verses 23 through 27 and find out when, when this thing exists. Verses 23 through 27 tells us in chapter 7 of Daniel, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of that kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time times, and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and destroy them to the end. So it's a, it's a kingdom that's in place. At the end, it's the last kingdom, isn't it? Let's go to Daniel chapter 2 real quick, like, just so as we'll know that as we read this cryptic language, we're not on our own in interpreting it, not by any means, because Scripture has described it over and over again. Most of these things that we're going to read that are cryptic descriptions. Daniel chapter, chapter 2, verses 31 through 34. Daniel 2, 31 through 34 says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them into pieces. Now let's go to verses 42 through 44 for the explanation of that, of Daniel chapter 2. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So we see here that same thing happening. We see that it's the last kingdom on earth that has seven heads and ten horns, and it gets destroyed in one instance here by a stone that's cut out of the mountains without hands, and another instance that <clears throat> Yeshua himself over in Revelation came and destroyed it. So as we read this, what, how could we summarize what this says? I mean, how could we, uh, how could we just in a few words describe what's said here to, to help us understand what's being said, but not, not so much with all this cryptic language? Let's, let me show you how, what I, how I summarized it very quickly. <clears throat> the beast, not the woman, has the names of blasphemy. The seven heads and ten horns have prophetic meanings clearly distinguished in other Bible passages. This beast represents the final dominant world power that will be destroyed by Yeshua himself. These kings, rulers, uh, presidents, prime ministers, whatever you want to call them, are involved in the same debaucherous game as, game or activity, whatever you want to say, as the woman. Why do I say that? Well, she's, they're, she's riding them. She's, they're carrying her along. They're, they're going along with it. All right, let's go back and read the verse that we just summarized again now, very carefully here. So he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. She's sitting there. Well, we just learned that the, the kings of the earth, these ten kings right here, these seven heads and ten horns, it, it, this represents ten kings that will arise, and then <clears throat> three of them are going to fall, and it's going to be represented by these, these final seven heads here. Well, they're kings of the earth. They're in the same Strumpetuous, if you please, debaucherous, if you please, activity as the whore is. We're going to find out that she's called the mother because she's so big and what she's doing is, I mean, she's the leader of the pack. They're all doing it, but she's like the leader. She's like, well, just follow me, boys, do what I do. So that's, that's kind of the picture we're going to get here as we, as we keep looking. Any, anybody have a different view? Please. This is an open forum. Okay. All right. I haven't heard any, any nays so far, so please. Let's just see what the scripture is saying. So let's go back and very quickly get a real quick view so far. Divine sentence has been passed against Mysterion, ba- Mysterion Babylon, a large and strumpetuous entity influencing the entire earth. It, it starts out that with that judgment is coming. Sentence has been passed. It's going to happen. That's what this angel's telling John. And then he goes into all this stuff tell, helping us to identify it. Because the rulers of the earth are involved in the same activities of the prostitute, the inhabitants of earth are intoxicated or they're, they're drunk. The whole earth. That's, that's, that's unusual, isn't it? As you think about that, it is, if you're convinced that Babylon is the Catholic Church, I would only ask you this. How would the rulers in India be going to a Catholic church and being good Catholics, and as a result, the inhabitants of India become intoxicated. Well, what's the connection? How would the rulers of, of China be involved as being good, you know, going to the Catholic church on Sunday and being good Catholics, which none of them do, by the way, and then the Chinese people, the general inhabitants, how would they get intoxicated by that? Is that, is that what's happening now? This, this stuff is going on now. There's something that this, this notorious prostitute is doing, and rulers... Not just little Joes like us, but rulers are involved in it, and people are getting intoxicated. What when you're when you're intoxicated, you're possessed by that alcohol, ain't you? Yeah, we we know all about that, and you've probably had friends that were intoxicated, and you you just can't get any sense out of them. Well, can you think of anything that 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 the inhabitants of the earth right now are intoxicated intoxicated with? I mean, what is it that everybody? 
I mean, this shouldn't be so hard for us to figure out, should it? Since the whole world's drunk with the same thing. I mean, if Wade's drunk on whatever, and I'm drunk on the same thing, hey, man, that's good stuff, huh? Yeah. All right. So what is the whole world drunk on right now? Roman Catholicism? Money and things? Money and things? Oh, wow. Money and things, maybe. That's just my... You tell me, what do you think the world is drunk on right now? The whole world. This verse right here says that the whole world, the inhabitants of the drunk of the earth, are intoxicated. That's all seven continents. I just was thinking about uh, as far as the intoxication could possibly be uh, considered as influence, and certainly of the primaries uh, preparing for an election, uh, everybody's talking about uh, change. And it seems like the the whole world is is picking it up and. People are demanding change. Whatever the change might happen to be, they just want change. Seems to me like a nationwide influence, whether it's worldwide or not. All right. Thank you, Delroy. Any other comments on what you think the inhabitants of the earth could be intoxicated with? I've got oil, black gold, the problems in the Middle East, pleasures of this world, mixed worship, power, power, yes, power, and the Western ways, worship of false gods. All right. I didn't hear Roman Catholicism nor a time. So all these are very good. But guess what? As we keep on this in this in this cryptic description, guess what? It's going to be laid out for us real clear what it is. We haven't got to it. We're just doing verse by verse just so we know what's said, just so we don't jump to any erroneous conclusions. So just just so that I can participate too. I want to, I want to put my vote in is that the thing that the inhabitants of Earth, now this includes the inhabitants of Australia, uh, Africa, Europe, Asia, North America, South America. There ain't a lot of people in Antarctica, but I'm sure there's some, so they're, they're intoxicated with the same thing, and I, and I believe, just because I can believe what I want to believe, but I got a lot of material evidence to back it up, it's money and things, because that's what people are intoxicated with, is money and things. That's, that's the world's God right now, is Money and things, but I'm afraid it's cracking because this worldwide uh, derivative thing is going to—it's going to—it's going to bring the god of this world, one of the gods of this world, money down. So that's my input, and that's why. Alrighty. So, <clears throat> but I'm—we're—we're going—we're going to nail it down before the study's over. With. It's going to take us several sessions. So the inhabitants—they're dr- drunk. The beast, not the woman, has the names of blasphemy. The seven heads and ten horns have prophetic meanings clearly distinguished in the Bible passages. This beast represents the final dominant world power that will be destroyed by Yeshua himself. Okay? And the prime ministers, rulers, presidents, kings, whatever you want to call them, are involved in the same debaucherous game as, game or activity as a woman because she's what? She's riding them. They're allowing it to a point, but we're going to get down to a point in chapter 17 where the ten of these kings start to hate this woman. We're going to read that. And, it's a very unusual construction in the Greek, and we're going to find out where these ten kings kind of sit to the side and manipulate it and have her burnt with fire. So it's very interesting. It's not just, uh, well, it's the Catholic Church kind of thing we can approach. We have to be careful to be sure that we understand what's being said so that we don't offend God's Word. He gives us chapter after chapter on the subject, and it's up to us to carefully look at it and pray and find out what's going to happen. Well, I'm going to have to hurry. One more verse. Verse 4. 
took us almost an hour to get four verses. How long is it going to take us to do two chapters? Oh, boy. And the woman was arrayed in purple. Hey, that was a color associated with the tabernacle in the day's Torah study, wasn't it? And scarlet, another color associated with the tabernacle today. And decked with gold. My goodness, another article in today's tabernacle study. And precious stones, another article associated with the tabernacle. And there weren't no pearls. Having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Her attire befits royalty, doesn't it? Same things used in the tabernacle. Well, the very presence of God came to where he said, build this tabernacle and I will dwell among you. So her attire befits royalty. But the cup, the cup, it says, was full of the word that got translated was abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Well, the word that got <coughs> translated abomination is the word, Wade, would you help me with that? Bedeligma, I can't, B-D-E-L-O-O-G. Okay, you heard Wade say it. I can't say it. And it got translated as abomination, but it means a detestation, something that's detestable. I just can't believe that's going on. I just can't believe that's happening. Golly, bum, that can't be possible. Okay? Another translation translates that right there as guess what? What's Wade, what did Wade spend two whole Saturdays or two whole Sabbath studies teaching us about? The religious system of Babylon. And the word, well, let me just, let me just very quickly bring it up and read it to you. Give me just a second and we'll just read it right here on the screen all together. I'll just bring up a sword here and we'll get it right up here. Alrighty. Oops, sorry. Okay, verse four, I'm sorry. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittered with gold, precious stones and pearls in her hand was a gold cup filled with the obscene. All that Wade was teaching us in the past couple of weeks was how obscene and there's no need me going into all the, and I, I'm, I'm glad, wait, I'm glad you had the guest stand up here and just be real graphic with us and make us get a grip on the obscenity of some of the things that go on. So another clue here is that in this cup that this woman has, it's filled with obscenities. Whoa. Well, we don't need to go into what all the things around our, our church buildings around have because they're very obscene. Very, Wade covered it. I can't, I'm not going to try to add to what he did. So thank you, Wade, for doing what you did. So, abominations, also obscenities, or detestable things. And then <clears throat> the word that got translated filthiness is immoral. Immoral. Lacking moral character. That these things are being done is, we don't care what morality is. We don't care what we learned in Sunday school. We don't care about anything like that. We're just going to do this. The cup, we're talking about the cup. Now, what's in the cup? Remember, her attire befitted royalty, but the cup is what gives her away. The contents are the antithesis of royalty. We, we learn about royalty in Scripture. It says that the, the, the throne, the kingdom, should be established on righteousness and goodness and mercy and things of that nature. But what's in this cup? Anything but royalty. A parallel passage in Jeremiah 51, verse 7, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made the earth drunken. The nations have drunk of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. That's a parallel passage in Jeremiah 51. So it says that Babylon had been a golden cup in the Lord's hand, but now Babylon has made all the earth drunk. The nations have drunk of her wine, and therefore the nations are mad. So let, let's try to summarize this verse up real quick, like, and we're going to close off for our study for today. The woman has the outward appearance of royalty. 
But if on closer examination, quite a different picture emerges. Wow. So we're going to have to stop there. It's, it's almost six. And we're going to continue on this fashion until we get a grip on what these verses are saying. So we clearly understand what's being said. And then, at that point, after we understand clearly what's being said, then we'll start looking around and see what we can find that fits. We'll go from there. All right, any, any comments, corrections, some ideas as to what Babylon is in the past? I'm sure you have. And we'll, we'll consider that. We'll consider everything. But it's very important for us to realize the judgment, the judgment that's coming and why. Because God gives us five chapters in Scripture total on this, what, what this subject is. We'll continue on next week. I want you to go home and study, 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 and pray over Revelation 17 and 18. Understand what's saying. Get your concordance out and look up the meanings of words. It'll help you. Messianic Radio for a spiritually hungry world. Speak to the rock. Get answers for your life. Find out what's missing in your Bible and why. Solace Radio. Changing lives one heart at a time. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about Mishpatim. Um, all commentators, I would say, yep, as I didn't find one, actually. Didn't think that this was not the hardest portion, actually, in all of Torah. And really in all of Scripture. Partly because it's a little bit of randomness, or it seems like randomness. Um, in fact, the NIV, if you have an NIV Bible, will put a little footnote on top that'll say, or a heading that says, sundry laws, which just means random laws. Because um, it seems kind of random. So today we're going to talk about um, maybe a little bit how they go together, because I don't know that Although I think I'm pretty good, I'm not good enough to to beat all commentaries and try to figure out the uh, how these all go together perfectly. But I do think it it speaks to the heart of God and what He wants us to know about Him um, more than even what He wants us to do. Um, so let me start with prayer, and then we'll talk about mishpatim. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for all of Your gifts, particularly when you've spoken to us directly. And Lord, when you gave Moses the law, it would have been enough that you just gave us this portion here, but you continued on to teach us and guide us on this journey that we're all a part of. And we just ask that we can hear you uh, even more clearly through uh, the way your Holy Spirit opens the Word to us. And we ask for your blessing in this time. In Yeshua's name, amen. So this week I got a... Uh, Something interesting in the mail, um, because it had a little badge on the front of it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't know what this is. So I opened it up, and there was three pictures of my car going through a red light. <laughs> and it had one far away, uh, one close up, and then one of the license plates. So there's really nothing I can say other than... Um, now, I didn't go through the red light. I was did a right on red, which I thought, um, gosh, those cameras are really good. Like, I, It's one thing that they can flash while you're going through the light. It's another thing when you stop and then you take a right turn that it even knows that you're not supposed to do that. Now, it says in the actual ticket, um, this is not evidence um, that you're guilty. However, it seems to me that you probably are and and signed you know, some cop who's in charge of watching videos, which I think would probably be one of the worst jobs. But... Um, interestingly enough, it says sign was posted. So the first thing I did was went online to look at the video because I thought, I don't remember there being a sign. Now, I don't normally drive where I was, so I just didn't even know that, that was a rule. I've always assumed you could turn red on red almost anywhere. Um, I didn't even look for the sign. So 
I looked, and in the video, on this little tiny sign all the way in the front, it says, no Turner Red. And I thought, well, there it is. It was posted. And I thought, but um, it would be the right thing to do to pay this ticket. Now, I could go in, and I could fight it, and I could probably get it lowered to something else. And usually, cops don't show up to those things, which means you can get off. But I knew that this, that the rule was there. It was posted. I broke the rule, and now I had to pay. And that's really the essence of justice, and really the essence of what the word mishpatim or mishpat means, because it is judgments, but it also in places can be justice, because the truth is, is that all of God's judgment lead towards something, right? They're, they have a goal in mind. Um, the difference between condemnation, right, <clears throat> and teaching is that condemnation says you've crossed the line, that's it, you're done, right? God doesn't condemn, especially those who are in his people. God convicts. Conviction means you did something wrong, now you owe something. Condemnation means you did something wrong, now you need to die, or something like there's a, a line that's unrecoverable. But in God's kingdom, even death is, is recoverable, right? So there's a lesson here that God's trying to teach, right? So let's go to, let's skip a little bit ahead in the Torah portion, um, to Exodus 23, because I think that this is actually the essence of this entire uh, Torah portion, starting with verse 1, chapter 23. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by becoming a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd into doing wrong when you give testimony in a lawsuit. Do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or your donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey or someone who hates you fallen down, under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. Now here's the, the key. Do not deny justice to your people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will acquit the guilty. For I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of righteousness. Do not oppress an alien. You yourself know how it feels to be aliens because you were aliens in Egypt, right? So the question is, why is this even here? All the rabbis, all the commentaries, all try to figure out why in the middle of this Mosaic covenant, before he goes up the mountain, right? He didn't go up the mountain yet in the story to get the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. Why is there this little section of laws that seems so random? And I think the key to this is justice because what God requires, he's a God of justice primarily, he gives us the Ten Commandments that talk about loving Him, right? We talked about last week. And loving neighbor as yourself. Now He's going to try to form His people. And in forming His people, He has to give boundaries for things. Because in the ancient Near East, there's all sorts of ways of dealing with murders and, you know, things. But what God does, which is really interesting, is He starts with slavery. Now, if you look at all the other codes of the ancient Near East, they all actually have all the same rules that Moses has here and that God puts here. There's really not much of a difference between the code of Hammurabi or the codes of other, you know, Babylonians. They all have laws. Why? Because if you don't have laws, things kind of fall apart. Now, what God does slightly different though is that he starts off with slavery. Right? The code of Hammurabi gives all sorts of laws about kings and and also and it ends with slavery, right? Now, what everybody says about the ancient Near East, now ancient Near East meaning Anybody in that region, right, and anything that they've written, there's a whole study you can read about the Hittites and the Amorites and this, you know, the, um, the, uh, any little tribe, really, that's there, usually has some sort of code, 
Even the Babylonians. Now, there's a difference between the Babylonians and the Egyptians. The Egyptians thought that their pharaoh became God, so therefore God was on their side, where the Babylonians felt like they were always at odds with God. So if you live in the middle between Babylon and Egypt, you're struggling continually with, is God against me or is God for me? Right? Because the purpose is that God wants them to trust Him and become His people, the one true God, not the gods of the ziggurats or the gods of the Tower of Babel up in Babylon, or the Pharaoh gods or the god Ra in Egypt. Does that make sense? So God's trying to help them understand. So there are many similar codes, but this one starts with slavery. And I think it says right here, because you know how it feels, right? Now the worst thing that I've seen in life that I have a hard time understanding is when abused people abuse, right? It's always amazing to me that you could go through abuse and then then turn around and become an abuser. There's something about it in human nature. And it's amazing that slaves could then treat people badly. Could you imagine somebody who comes out of slavery ever treating somebody badly, ever whipping somebody, ever get, you know, ever hitting them so hard that a tooth falls out, which is part of this passage, right? Could you imagine that even happening? Now, just to put this in context, this type of slavery is different than what we've experienced here in America. American slavery, and particularly Egyptian slavery, were completely twists of justice, right? Why? Because American slavery, we literally found people on a beach that we didn't even know, took them, stole them from their families, and made them work for us for an extended period of time that had no end, really until that person died. Egyptian slavery was the same thing. 400 years of slavery. There was no end to it. It was just you, your children are slaves. You continue being slaves. In fact, it even broke the codes of Egypt to have slaves that long, right? So God comes in and says, you know how it feels to be slaves. So never treat each other this way, right? And every law that's in these sundry laws, all these random laws, are laws of the lesser. And there's a, uh, an idea within rabbinic Judaism that I think comes from scripture that the lesser always if you start with the lesser, it also is true for the more, right? So if you start with all the things that are low in society, um, young women, the land, oxen, right? Um, poor people, slaves, then how you treat them, if God raises the bar for how you treat the least of these, then it's true for everybody else. Does that make sense? So what happens, though, is that in Judaism we started counting. We started counting each law, and we said, oh, there's 53 mitzvot in this passage out of a total of 613. But the problem with that, um, and it's not bad to count how many there are because it's interesting, but the problem with counting is that they stop counting them when they re- get repeated. So eye for an eye gets repeated at least three times in the Torah, right? But in each case, it's slightly, it's, it's slightly different for the context it's in, right? Even the Ten Commandments, when you compare we talked about last week, Sabbath in the, in, uh, Exodus versus the reasoning for Sabbath and Deuteronomy are different. And as we get even further in the Torah portions, as you kind of continue on this journey, as we go through the, the Torah portions over the next year, you'll see that laws change a little bit, right? So the question is, does God's law change? And people say, oh, no, no, God's law never changes. We need to follow every single one. The problem is, is that for the context, the laws do change. We don't use tabernacle laws today, right? We don't even sacrifice today. As believers in Yeshua, we don't sacrifice the same way, right? So the way the actual law is played out is slightly different, but the principle stays the same. And that's the part that I want to get across as we start this journey into law, because that's going to be most of what happens in the Torah portions over the next year, is you talk a lot about laws. But the problem is is that Torah doesn't mean law. Torah means tutor, right? And the New Testament even says it's meant to be a tutor. It's a shadow pointing to something. 
It's supposed to teach us something. Now, what people have forgotten is that they think now that they have a little bit, they don't need a tutor anymore. So they say, oh, we got a little bit in the New Testament, so we don't need the Old Testament at all. In this congregation, we don't believe that. What we believe is that we are continually tutored by the law of God, that a tree planted by the river grows strong. Right? If you meditate on the Word day and night, you become a wise person. But wisdom is not about the, knowing the law. Wisdom is knowing when to enact the law. Wisdom isn't knowing the right thing to say. Wisdom is knowing the right way to say it and the right time to say it. Right? So God isn't just teaching us laws that we can check off a list. Like, oh, okay, I've got these 53 figured out. Right? Which, by the way, is a lot in one little section. 53 out of 613. But the truth is there's way more than 613 because if you count all the times it repeats, it gets into a lot more. And each one of those things changes a little bit. So one thing that I want to do generally about the law is, is sort of settle it in your mind and hopefully for me too, that there are times that with a change of priesthood, there is a change of law, right? Which is what it says in Hebrew. Because what we've made the mistake of, we're worried sometimes about what our parents think. And we're worried about what other what other Jews think in terms of the law, and we try to cover all of them. But that was never the intention. The intention was to create a system in which we understood wisdom so that we could take the ideas and apply them to the situations that we're in, so that the principles never go away. It's exactly the way EasyPass works, right? There's new laws for EasyPass. You can now drive through the tolls. Ten years ago, you had you if you drove through the toll, you got a ticket. Now you can go online and you can pay your your right. But the principle didn't change, but the way the law it, is changes, right? With my ticket, right, the principle was always there. I can't turn right on red. But they realized that somebody probably kept turning right on red at that spot. So much so that they put a camera in, not just to be mean, not just to give out tickets, not just for revenue, but they realized it was dangerous. So we're going to have to let people know that they're breaking this law. So they added more laws. And what happens in the Torah is God gives some laws to Moses. In fact, he wanted to speak them to the people, but they said no. So then God gives Moses the laws. Right, And then over the year that they're at Sinai, because they're there for a long time, they do things, and then God responds with more laws. And those laws aren't always um, new things. They're expansions of, lot of the same ideas. Does that make sense? And the truth is, is, if you just take these 53, this would be a pretty good set of laws, because it covers the least of things. Right? So you say, look, we treat the least in our community this way. Then the rest of us get treated just as good as that. Right? So you do, so what I wanted to do, which we can't, we obviously don't have time to go through all 53, uh, mitzvot in this passage. So what I wanted to do is go through a couple of them and show you God's intention by how the Messiah interpreted them. Does that make sense? That the Messiah, according to Talmud, when the Messiah comes, he's going to make our halakha straight. He's going to explain it to us so that we do it the right way. Right? That the way we become doers of the word, that the Messiah is supposed to come and help us understand where we went wrong and straighten those things. And we believe that Yeshua did that. In fact, almost everything, in fact, pretty much, in fact, let me take that back. Everything he did that's written down in the New Testament is a tweaking of the way we understood law. And it's a fulfillment of what his original intention when he gave it to Moses. Which is why he could say to them when they're talking about divorce and they're trying to trick him. Do you remember that part? Where they say, who, you know, how do we, if a person gets married a bunch of times and they die, well, what happens in the resurrection? Right? And there's all these questions like they're trying to trick him with all sorts of law questions. And they talk about um, divorce. right? And Yeshua's response is, Moses only gave you that because you were stubborn. <laughs> right? So there's our, our, our key. God in the flesh says, Moses gave you this law because you were stubborn. Not because it's a universal principle. Not because it's for all time. Because you needed it. 
right? So as we go through the law as Messianic Jews, we need to go with a fine-tooth comb and say, does this, does the principle, the principle will always apply, but does the moment in the context that we're in make sense? Now this doesn't mean we're getting rid of anything. What it means is that we're trying to understand it well enough so that we can apply it to the context that we're in, right? So like my ticket, I decided I could fight this because normally I would, but then I'm reading through this tour portion and I thought, nope. What God's saying is that justice always requires payment. And if God is a God of justice, he's a God of redemption. And redemption is a form of payment. And if I did something wrong, then I have to pay. That's the law, right? But there's no tickets in the, in Scripture. There's no red lights in Scripture. Why did I know that? Because I'm reading through 53 mitzvot in this Torah portion that all talk about the least things. And these least things, I can then apply to other things in my life. Does that make sense? And Yeshua, the Messiah, does the exact same thing. So he comes into situations and he applies Torah, which is why they're all confused. They say, he speaks with so much authority. How can he do this? Because he's applying Torah in the way that it was meant to be, a tutor. He's saying, let it teach you something. Not just check the list off. Because you can have, you know, all the knots, right? I have a, you know, put it on there. You put your belt on, you know, you put it on your belt. You keep it, right? But the truth is, is there's only 613 on here. But there's way more in Scripture. And it doesn't teach me wisdom. It gets in the way when I grab my wallet, right? Same reason why mezuzah's on the door, right? It's, I mean, the same reason why you would lay to fill in. It's a reminder. It's really even the same reason why we would do communion. There's reminders in Scripture, but they're meant to put us in the context that when we read what's in Scripture, we apply it to our lives in a way that fits our context. And then the Holy Spirit, which it's supposed to do, ministers us in a way that goes back to Sinai when God, with that tuning fork, speaks to us in a way that we all understand and we all follow together, and that we journey together. Does that make sense? So it's more difficult. It is hard to do. It would be. It's much easier to do like some, some Orthodox do, which is check off your 613, and then when you're not on Sabbath, put on your Metallica t-shirt and go to R-rated movies. That's easy, because you can just check your list. But there's not wisdom in that, letting your kids do whatever. You know, I'm amazed. Anyway. It's amazing. We talked about it last week. Like when you hire, what happens is, is that when you make things checklist, when you make a bounded set, right, and you start treating God like it's not the God of justice, it's my justice, then you start judging other people based on what you think it's supposed to look like, right? But what God does here is he reminds us that if he can take care of the little things, he can take care of the big things. And if he can take care of the big things, that he, that if he's the God of justice and you want justice in your life, then he's going to bring about justice in other people's life. And that we don't have to be the, the harbingers of bad news in most things because God's pretty good at doing that if we're all approaching the throne. So all we have to do is usher people in and he speaks because that was his original intention. Does that make sense? So the law then hedges all that in. And as we go through the law, we understand God's wisdom and his standards for things. right? And his standards for things helps us to be wise in the world. Does that make sense? So that's the preface for all of the law, but particularly these 53, because we're talking about between the Ten Commandments and the 53 that are in here, almost 10% of the whole, of all the mitzvot that we count. Does that make sense? Okay. So, let's just spend a second then, um, or a few minutes, going through a couple of them, because we don't have time to go through all of them, okay? So let's go back to chapter 21. Hebrew servants, right? We talked about this a little bit. Now, there are two things in here. We don't even have to read it because we read it um, in the reading. That there's all these laws here about slaves. Now, we talked these are these are more indentured servants, not slaves the way we understand um, 
from American experience or even the way the Egyptian experience was. This is about treating people with justice, particularly as we read when we get to the land, how we treat strangers, right? Now, this is where it gets really hard because I can tell you all about how this doesn't really apply because we don't have slaves anymore. But again, it's what I'm trying to say that there's a principle here that the least things matter to the big things because God's trying to show that he cares about the people who are low in society so then everything else falls into place, right? Um, what this says about God is that God requires payment. It's the first thing you have to know. That justice always requires payment. That when somebody sins against you, you can, as a person, say, this is my requirement. But what the law does, particularly here, is it limits how much you can ask for it. Because there are other societies and other peoples who ask for way more than they're allowed. You say, oh, well, you stubbed my toe, so you need to buy me a house. Or you, but it's amazing because when you compare this with other codes, um, it's not even the best code. And a lot of people want to say, oh, it's better. God, God looks at society and makes the law better than everybody. But in the code of Hammurabi, slaves go free in three years, not six, right? So slaves even get freer in Hammurabi's code. Um, and all of the ancient Near East, what, what every commentary says about ancient Near East culture in general is that the law is not so much for the people because most of these laws, I don't know if you notice, in Scripture don't get enacted. You never hear anybody having this happen to them. You don't normally hear about a kid who curses his parents getting stoned, right? Even in the ancient Near East with, with all these other codes, these codes are set up as principles to live by. But if it's the least things for the greater things, then when you get into a situation that's not exactly the same, and hopefully this is making sense to you, that you can apply it with wisdom, which is why God set up judges and they sat at the gate and they made decisions. They use this as their principles. Because the truth is, is if you went by this, Moses should have died the minute he wrote it down, right? Because one of the laws is if you wait for somebody and you kill them, you have to be killed. So I could imagine Moses is thinking, okay, we were slaves. God, okay, let's go. I'm going to write down whatever you say. Okay, first, first rule. Uh, when you have a slave, well, hold on. God, we're not going to have slaves. We're Hebrews. We know what it feels like. Okay. Well, you better write it down. Because I'll tell you right now, there's a bunch of people who are out of water and are out of food and are all camped at a mountain they don't want to be at. And guess what they're doing to each other? Well, I have a little extra food, but now you owe me. Right? Okay, well, let's write it down. This is how you treat people when you start making indentured servants. Does that make sense? Then you write a little bit more. Okay, God, what, what's next? What's next? You get to the, if you kill somebody, um, prepare to die. <laughs> you know, most... What does that mean for Moses? Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? I mean, he already is, feels out of place to begin with. He's not sure if he really wants to be the leader. He leads these people to the desert, and at the desert there's this huge fire, and nobody wants to hear God, and now he's in charge of everything. And the first thing God tells him is, worry about the slaves, oh, and, and murderers can't go free. Right? It's a very odd position to be in. Um, but it's partly because God has an end, end goal, that when they get to the land, that he wants them to treat people a certain way. Because the gospel is not just for Israel, right? This thing is supposed to go beyond the good news of what God is doing in the world, right? His story is supposed to go beyond this, particularly to people who um, are outsiders, right? And remember, the, when we went to the end of chapter 23, it said, don't pervert justice. If your enemy's ox falls down or is lost, bring it back. What does that look like? Can you imagine, Right? And then we fast forward and Yeshua talks about a good Samaritan. Everyone freaks out, right? He's doing the same thing. If your ox falls down and you're, it's your enemy's ox, bring it back. If your enemy is in the street hurt, pick him up and, and, and help him. Do you see how the principle, the principles get applied? You know, and you can find this, and Herb and I were talking right before service. This happens so many times, with, particularly with these 53 mitzvot. You can even go 
to Yeshua um, talking in the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts talking about giving away cloaks. And it's out of this Torah portion. Right? It's this same idea. Right? So, are you getting sort of the idea that God is a God of justice and justice requires payment because it's about redemption? Right? Particularly with slaves. That the reason we got out of Egypt was because God paid a price. Right? Part of the reason God had to convince Pharaoh to kick us out was because technically we owed Pharaoh. Right? He gave us land. He gave us a place to live. He gave us food when there was a famine. Technically we were indentured. What Pharaoh did was he twisted, he twisted justice. Because he didn't just let us go in three years like the Code of Hammurabi, or six years which we find in our code. Right? He kept him for 400 something. Generations went by. So then people cry out for justice and God shows up. Do you understand? So the first thing God wants us to know is that God is the God of justice. Justice always has redemption. And redemption is a, is a form of payment. You can't be, you can't have justice without payment. And you can't be right with somebody without paying for the offense made against you. Right? All of these laws come down to that. Right? When we fast forward then to the captivity, what do we go away for? What do we get kicked out for? What is God mad at that all the prophets bring up? That you didn't treat, you didn't take care of the widows and orphans. You didn't take care of the enemies. The people in your gates. You didn't take care of the land. Right? It all comes from this Torah portion. We didn't go into captivity because we were like Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't because we were okay with gay marriage. Right? It was because we didn't take care of people. Now, gay marriage is a whole different issue. But what I'm saying is, is what we think is justice, the, the things that we judge people on, the things that we take and we make a list for, are not the things that God starts with, which says something. Because God has an end goal that's different than us because he can see the beginning from the end and we can't. So if we judge, what does the Messiah say? Judge not lest you be judged. Why? Because if you start judging, you take away from what God's trying to do. We're all on a continuum. All of us are fallen sinners. All of us got chosen before we were um, stopped being sinners. Even Paul says, I was the worst. He found me while I was still sinning. Right? If that's true, then how do we treat people? How do we treat outsiders? How do we treat Gentiles? How do we treat other Jewish people? How do we treat each other? You see? And then the New Testament spends so much time on unity that the other things seem small. And people say, no, 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 we need to have holiness. We need to have a list of holiness. Yes, that's true. But in response to who you are. So first God, last week's Torah portion, teaches us who we are and says, I'm holy, you be holy, act holy because you're a royal priesthood. Now he says, treat people the way they should be treated because you know how it feels. Or in other words, treat people how you want to be treated. Right? Do you see where this is going? That's what real justice is, is treating people with dignity because you were treated with dignity. God found you as a sinner and has brought you on a continuum and you're not as far as you should be and neither is anybody else. Right? In fact, some of us, in this passage, some of our family started taking slaves of each other only three months into after they were stopped being slaves. I mean, could you imagine that the abuser becomes the, you know, the abused becomes the abuser. And God says, do not twist justice. These are the limits. If you even hit your slave, he goes free. There's a limit to how long you can have him. You can only make somebody indentured to you. You know, you're not even supposed to charge each other interest. Not only that, you need to let the land rest. And when you plant stuff, Make sure you leave some for the poor people. Do you see like the the ideas? And if you and if you treat children badly, you better watch out, right? And then Yeshua the Messiah says it would be better if you had a millstone wrapped around your neck if you treated these children badly, right? See, he's doing the exact same thing, right? Which on one hand proves that he's the Messiah because he understands Torah so much that even as a twelve-year-old he can confound the other rabbis, right? But when we start looking at it, we go, man, this is some wisdom. He's taken Torah and not just 
marking it off. He's, he's applying it with wisdom into this context and the situations that we have problems with. Does that make sense? Okay, we could stop there, but I want to show you a couple examples. Um, let's read down now to verse 12. Let's do the eye for an eye. Right? Anyone, verse 12 of chapter 21, who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. However, if it's not intentional, um, but, get, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place that I will designate. Right? So here's one of those. I'm going to post a sign. Don't turn right on red. When you turn right on red, later I'm going to give you another law. Right? Because this isn't some, doesn't sum up everything. It just says, like, one day I'm going to give you some, some place for murderers to live. You know, or, or at least manslayers or something like that. Um, oops, I'm on the wrong, wrong part. But anyway, it, it works either way. Anyone who taxes father or mother must be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps. Um, all of this also, if you realize, is in context of the Ten Commandments. So if you could even just take this section and talk about honor your mother and father, uh, do not steal, fits in here too. Um, okay, then we go down to uh, verse 23. But if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Right? Now whatever, what most people say about this is this is not, this is not your minimum, this is your maximum. Right? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is, is the maximum penalty. This happens sometimes. They'll say, you know, this person is going up to their court case and their minimum amount of time is two months and the maximum amount of time is five months. That wisdom in law says to people that we believe that this is the amount of time that's worth the payment for what you did. Does that make sense? Because God is a God of justice. Justice has to do with redemption. Right? God redeemed us from Egypt, which is why we are, He owns us. Right? Which is why we follow Him. We're His people. Um, he gives us these laws, right? Do you see the pattern I'm kind of unfolding? Because this is the pattern that happens through the rest of Scripture, right? This is why in the New Testament, God could say, you were bought at a price, honor God with your body. Same thing, right? Same concept, different different context, same law, same principle, right? You are slaves to the Messiah, right? Paul calls himself a slave to the Messiah. Why? Because he realizes that he was paid for. When Yeshua died on that cross... He defeated Satan, but he also paid for our sin, right? And when he paid for our sin, that means that we are set free, but we're indebted to him. Do you see? Which is why we serve him. And then we make sacrifices of our lives. Do you see? So the pattern, same law, but the pattern gets expanded, right? Okay, so let's go real quickly to Matthew chapter 5. Right? I had my thing there, so I'll wait for you because I knew I was going to go there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right Here we go. Now the Messiah is going to interpret for us. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants you to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Where does this come from? Where does the wisdom of this come out of? Now, if I don't know if you realize, this is part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, the meek because they'll inherit the earth. And then toward the end he says, and you've heard it said eye for an eye. Right? Because it had gotten turned, the, 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 the justice had been perverted in a way. And he's saying, look, you're, you missed the intention of this. That this is supposed to be a maximum thing. That if somebody comes and smacks you, an evil person, what does this go back to? If you see your ox 
And if your enemy's ox, pick him up. If your enemy fell to ground, pick him up. If your enemy smacks you, let him hit you again. Right? If they sue you, give them what they want. Why? Because God is the God of justice. If you believe God is the God of justice, the two things happen. You believe that when thing, when people sin against you, God will bring about justice. Right? Does that make sense? That there's a, there's a little bit of trust that's involved too. That you can allow your enemy to act like your enemy and be okay with it because God is the God of justice. And that justice requires payment. And that there is payment, but it's not your payment. It's not what you set up. It's what God set up. They're on the continuum. Let God do it. If they've sinned against you, okay. God is the God of justice. Do you see? Now, in the beginning, God is the least of these. So it's like we don't want slaves. So you could just do the one way. God is God of justice, so we should treat people nicely. But the other hand is God is the God of justice, so when things go wrong, I can trust that he knows what he's doing. You see, it goes in two directions, because God is above and beyond and bigger and wider, right? So justice then um, isn't just a set of rules, it's an expectation for how God's going to act, right? So then, because of that, he says to us, look, if somebody sues you, okay, you know, don't try to get revenge. Revenge doesn't even work anyway. It doesn't get you what you want because you're not even sure what you want when you're trying to get revenge. Right? And people say bitterness just is like a cancer. It eats away at you, you know? And usually anger at another person actually damages you more, you more than the person because they don't even know, always know that you're even angry. Right? Um, so an eye for an eye. And then what does Yeshua do? Because he's understanding the wisdom of the Torah portion that we're in today. He goes with, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, which is, that part's not in Torah. Although they try to point to it, but it's not in Deuteronomy though. Um, I say, pray for those who persecute you. Why? See, some people think that what Yeshua was doing was being countercultural. And what he was doing was overturning scripture in some way. Like he was taking the Torah and saying, it doesn't apply anymore. That's how some people would take it. Others would say that he was going against the culture of the time, which I think is right, because the culture of the time had perverted justice a little bit. And they were in a context that we don't even understand, being under the, persecuted by a whole other group of people and living sort of like slaves in their own land again, even though they, they believed that they were righteous at that point. right? They bought into the system with a false priesthood. And the first century was kind of a mess because there was a lot of politicking happening. And there were a lot of bribes happening. right? They recently, in the last few years, have found the Sadducees' houses under Jerusalem. And they're immense Right? They're not little places. They're not like most houses in Jerusalem, if you've ever been in one, is like these tiny little houses. They had these huge kind of palaces in the middle of the city. Why? Because they were tied in. So why could Yeshua get mad at them? Because they're doing exactly what he said not to do, perverting justice. Right? Um, so he could say he's not, he's not negating Torah. He's bringing it back to the original intention. Right? He's showing, he's fulfilling Torah by showing us what it really means. That at the end, um, these things don't even matter, the rules themselves. When we get to heaven, there's not even rules for marriage anymore. There isn't even marriage. So there, is, there will come a day where the law doesn't even apply at all. But the principles will still be there because they say something about God. Do you see what I mean? So there won't be, there won't be sin anymore. There won't be death anymore. God will wipe away all the tears from our eyes is what the scripture promises. But the principles of God and his character will still be the same, which is why we'll be in awe of him. Because he's a God of justice. And what we'll say is, blessed is he who was slain, right? Why? Because we're realizing we've all been redeemed. And redemption has something to do with justice. And justice is really only something God can do, right? And it repeats over and over that God is the God of justice. So what does that mean about how we treat people, right? And this was this is a harsh one because I know it's not, and it's sweeping, I know. But it doesn't make sense for a group of people who lived in ghettos to ever create a ghetto for anybody else. 
but we do, right? It's one of the saddest things in Israel that there are enemies who are believers, who live in ghettos because of the politics of people who don't necessarily or don't care about the law. Now we can, we can support Israel 100% of our, with 100% of our heart, but we can't support them unilaterally in every decision because God doesn't support Israel 100% unilaterally. He sends prophets to say, you are not being just and it's up to us as the remnant, as the people of God to say, if Israel's not doing something right, we stand up and say, this is not justice. This is not God's justice. We shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening in God's land. This should be a land of holiness. This should point to Him. There shouldn't be secret things and proxy wars. This is aside from whether Israel has a right to exist or aside from whether they have a right to defend themselves, which I believe. But the way we go about it matters to God. Because the first time we were in the land and God gave us everything he promised and we didn't have justice, he took us out for a while. And there's really nothing to say that he won't do it again. Although we want to believe this is the end times and this is the last time, which I hope that it is and it seems like it might be, it might not. And we might go through another thing if we continue to act without justice. That's what God cares about because that's the first thing he said. Love me, love your neighbor, and here's a whole bunch of rules about justice. And those things make me upset. So upset that I'll even remove you from the promise for a while. I'll restore you. Because my end goal is to have you there. My end goal is to give you the blessing. But you can't continue to be an unjust people who represent a just God. So it is our responsibility to support Israel with the wounds of a friend, right? I know that's hard to say because there are lots of issues there that are not easily solved. But but we do have to. It doesn't make sense that we would ever abuse anybody um, because we were abused so many times. You would think that Egypt would have solved it. We were abused for hundreds of years. We wouldn't abuse anybody ever again. But no, we did it again, right? You get to the prophets, we did it again, right? You think at the Holocaust, we'd, that would be it for us. Our theology would change. From now on, we're going we're gonna to be with God. Not only that, he's given us the land back. We get to go back to the land if we wanted to. We can live there. We can cultivate it. We can, we can go back to it. We'll never abuse anybody ever again. Well, no. You see? So God's calling us to be a people of justice because God is a God of justice. And when things happen that need justice, there means there's a payment that's involved. And that payment has to be paid. And we owe somebody something, right? So for us that are already believers, we believe that Yeshua dying on that cross is our payment, right? That we can look upon Him who was slain and realize that we've been redeemed. Therefore, we can say things like, he found me while I was still sinning. And honor God with your body because He bought you at a price. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Right? You know that verse? Every teenager has to memorize that. Because mostly, what parents are trying to do is get them not to like make out with other people or do things. Right? They want them to be holy with their body. And they, they say, look, you're bought at a price. You better act the right way. But it's more than that. It's you've been redeemed. You've been set free. You know who you are. So what Scripture tries to do is, over and over, it says, know who you are, know where you've been, and know where you're going. And that's exactly what this Torah portion is about. That God is the God of justice. That means there's a payment, and that payment has to be made. So that's true for individuals when, when we sin against each other. Um, and that's true with us and God. So some of us who don't know the Lord or are wondering if Yeshua is the Messiah, um, a lot of times I hear people say, well, I'm a good person. And I say, yeah, you are good. But how do you treat the least of these? Right? Go back to this Torah portion. How do you treat the least in society? Do you require justice? Right? It's not just, have you ever stolen? Well, yeah, I've stolen a little bit. Have you ever 
committed adultery. Well, no, I've never committed adultery. Well, you know, if you even think about a woman, then you're committing adultery. Well, I've done that. Okay, you're going to hell. It's not that simple. It's not a checklist. Do you see what I mean? Although that's partially true, it's not, it's not the way we present it. And people say, oh, I don't want that. That just sounds like judgment. And you're saying, no, it's more than that. God wants to redeem. There is justice involved. God wants to be the God of justice in your life, which means you have to accept His justice in your life and then extend it to others. It's supposed to heal the world, this gospel that we talk about. The good news is not just that He saves us so we get out of this horrible place. It's so that at the end, He restores all things to what they're meant to be. You know, even our final resting place isn't even heaven. It's the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth, a new Jerusalem, right? We get to live out the rest of our existence with God fully in our presence where we don't even need the sun and the moon anymore. The laws of physics change at that point. Do you see? So whether the law is, is whatever age we're in, which I'm not sure of, you know, where the law is in terms of its transition, the principles always stand. And the first principle from this Torah portion, one of the prime principles in all of Scripture is that God is a God of justice. And I know I keep saying it, but the reason I'm saying it over and over is because God says it over and over. And it's going to come up a lot in Scripture. That justice is one of the more important things. In fact, maybe the most important thing next to loving God. Because when you look at the Torah portions in order, again, it's love God, love your neighbor, do justice. So maybe the third most important thing to God is do justice. That's the way we're supposed to be looking at our world. Okay, last one. In this Torah portion, which I read in, in um, chapter 23, it says, do not pervert justice. Do not bring a crowd together to pervert justice. Right? So let's go to um, John chapter 8. Because the Messiah does something interesting with the idea of a crowd and perverting justice. Now some of you may or may not have this, depending on which version, because whoops, this story moves around. Now, a side note, um, which we can talk about more another time, the story of the woman caught in adultery, um, nobody believes that it's not biblical. They're just not sure where it fits in Scripture. Because in some manuscripts, it's in John chapter 7, sometimes it's at the end. But it's always in there. It's just where the, the story itself, it's self-sufficient. So it's not an issue of whether, because like in my Scripture, it says the earliest manuscripts don't have this. right? Which makes you think, whoa, is this not the Bible? No, it's not that. It's just it's not in this spot. Okay? Side note. But let's just talk about this story. Um, Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared. Oops, let me go down. Yep, that's it. He's at the Mount of Olives, and a bunch of people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers and the law of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Right? This comes out from the partially from this Torah portion, um, and parts in Leviticus as well. Now, what do you say? Now, they're trying to trap him here, right? But he says, uh, well, it says right away, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a bias for accusing him of, of him breaking the law, right? But Yeshua bent down and started writing something on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him throw the first stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Right? Now, there's two things happening here. One is, she said, they said it was a woman caught in adultery, in the act of adultery. Now, I don't know about you, but can you catch one person in adultery? Right? There had to be another person. So, we know that part of the trap was they brought in a woman by herself to pervert justice. Now, if you go back to the Torah portion, God is concerned with women. 
He's concerned with the land. He's concerned with, right? So what these people were doing was they were doing exactly what chapter 23 of Exodus says not to do. Riling up a crowd to pervert justice. Because they were accusing her. Now, the, now it's possible she did accuse, she really was committing adultery. But that wasn't their intention. Their wasn't intention wasn't to restore her. Their intention wasn't to help her stop sinning. Their intention was to kill her to see what Jesus would do. That's messed up. Right? I mean, it's really messed up. Um, and what he does is he sort of ignores them a little bit. Now, nobody knows what he writes on the ground. But the point is, is they just keep talking and talking and talking, saying how much they need to be able to stone this woman. And he gets down on the floor and starts drawing. <laughs> I mean, that's what my daughter does when she doesn't want to go potty. You know, she starts doing something else. Like, okay, like, right? He just sort of does something else. And they're trying to pervert justice, right? And he says, if any of you are not sinning, go ahead and cast the first stone. Now, who's, what does it say right here after that? It says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones left first. Now, I think that's important because the older ones know better. They know what they were doing, right? They weren't just riled up. These guys knew, right? He said, which one of you are sinning? Now, he didn't say, do any of you sin at any time? Because this is the way I've heard people preach it. Like, all of us are sinners, so we can't ever stone somebody because all of us are sinners. No, this is, you're perverting justice, which makes God angry, right? Which he says clearly in the Torah portion. You're riling a group up, which means you're breaking Torah. You're taking a woman who was caught in adultery, which it says in Torah, if you catch the people in adultery, you bring the man and the woman to the judge, which they're not doing. So they're breaking Torah again, right? So they're like maybe, they have like the trifecta of broken Torah to try to trap Yeshua. Why? Because they weren't doing justice. They were trying to trap the Messiah. That's not justice, you see? So his thing is, okay, fine. If any of you are not sinning right now, then go ahead. Because maybe you have the right then. Maybe she was caught in adultery. But they all knew everything they were doing, down to her being alone, to them riling up a crowd, to them perverting justice. They all knew that they were breaking Torah. And it wasn't that it was a perfect response to her situation. It was a perfect response to the context within the wisdom of understanding that God cares for the least of these. Right? So then you would think what he would do is he would stand up and say, you know, I know that you did this because I am God. So... Um, I'm going to stone you by myself. Because I'm the only one who's not sinning here, so I'll stone you. That's not what he does. What does he do? He says, go and sin no more. right? Because God says his intention since the beginning of Exodus was to set us free. right? Not just condemn us. right? Convict us so that we change. And if we believe God is the God of justice, then we should be okay with that. Because we know that God will bring about justice in her life and bring about justice in our lives. And we, and it's not just what we, how we treat people, but our expectation for how he's going to act, how God's going to act in the world. So when things are, when we have offenses against us, we can let them go easier. We can turn the other cheek. And when we find ourselves in a position where we have offended people, we go out of our way to make sure we pay. Right? Because we know what we did was wrong. I turned right on red. It wouldn't have been justice for me to go in and try to beat the system. Not because I couldn't. I'm sure I could. I've probably done it before. <laughs> right? But I, but I was reading the Torah portion and the guidelines sort of said to me, in wisdom you don't beat things because they can be beaten. You pay because it's justice. And God is a God of justice. You represent me. You were bought at a price. I gave you justice. You know how it feels. You know, you know how it feels to be t- treated unjustly. Don't treat anybody else unjustly. You know how it feels. You used to be slaves. We used to be slaves in Egypt and now we're not. Dayenu. Now treat people the way... You want to be treated. And that comes up over and over. Do you see the themes, how they all kind of go together? I know it's a lot of information, and I'm sure I went longer than I was supposed to, but 
If you don't understand who the Messiah is, know this, that God is a God of justice, which means that he wants to redeem, which means there needs to be a payment. And if you can figure out a payment for, for you treating the least of these, then I'd like to hear it. But what God says is the payment for this ultimately is death. And the only way to restore this is to have somebody pay that price. And Yeshua came not only as the Messiah to teach us halakha, but he also became the priest and the prophet and the king and the ultimate sacrifice that made it so that we could be redeemed from all time. The New Covenant says that when he died, we were not only redeemed from the things in the future, but the things in the past. That it goes both directions. right? That he really does cover all things. So if you don't know who he is, Today's the day to realize that if you've looked at your life and you see injustice, if you even believe in injustice, then you know that there needs to be a payment. Right? And Scripture says that payment is the Messiah. If you know who the Messiah is and you've offended somebody else, pay. Pay what they want, which is what Torah says. Right? If you haven't treated people the right way, treat them the right way. Go and sin no more. If you've been sinned against, know that God is a God of justice. That he requires payment. God always gets what he wants. You don't have to worry. So you can turn the other cheek. Do you see how it all goes together? Yeshua knew it so well that he could apply it in all these different situations. So in the situations in our lives where we feel like justice hasn't been served and we want to redeem it ourselves, we can let it go. Make sense? Stay tuned to Solace Radio.